0: Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast, by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John
1: Brown and Ar Levy. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. I'm John Brown from riffhard.com and Monuments. My co-host is Ar Levy, co-founder of URM Academy and guitarist from Darth. Thank you so much for being here. Since the podcast is brand new, let me tell you a little bit about it. We're having real conversations with guitarists who we consider to be the best and most relevant on earth. If you like this podcast and would like us to continue making more, please share our episodes with your friends. Post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me, Al, and our guest. You spell those tags at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A L Levy URM Audio, and that's spelt E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. And leave us reviews and five stars wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, thank you so much for listening. We will never charge you for this podcast and will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Our guest today is Dean Lamb, who is a Canadian guitar player who plays in the extreme technical death metal band Arkspire, who I personally think are the, uh, the torchbearers for technical death metal. In my opinion, they're the best thing to have come around in the genre since Necrophagist. And Dean is one of my favorite musicians in the scene, I've known him for a couple of years now. Had him on Nail the Mix, and Arcsfire played the URM Summit, and actually did a podcast with him and Dave Otero a couple of years ago. And so I'm pretty familiar with him as a musician, and he's just an impressive dude. I love how he thinks. Anyways, I'm going to shut up. Let's get this going. Well, Dean Lamb, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Hello. Hello, Dean. Hello. How's life been since playing death metal in a hotel ballroom?
2: Uh, (laughs) So you're referring to the uh, URM Summit that we were invited by uh, yourself to play in, when was that, November?
0: November 2019 in Vegas.
2: That was very, very fun. Life has been very different. We did a European headliner tour in December, and that was one of our most successful tours ever. And then since then, things have gone downhill You might have heard.
0: (laughs) So basically the high point was the summit. Absolutely. The tour was maybe a few rungs under that. Sure. And then everything else has just been fantastic.
2: It has been great, yeah. It's a really weird time to be alive and then also to be a musician, but you guys no doubt have uh, talked about that plenty of times. So it's just trying to fill my time with being creative without being able to actually perform in-person live for anybody. So yeah, it's a new phase of my life. Are you enjoying the YouTube stuff? Yeah, I've been doing weekly videos two times a week for the last four or five months. And then now I'm recently on Twitch trying to uh, build a community there. And that's, I mean, hey, that's been great. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. But it is a substitute for playing live. So we'll see how that continues when we can actually go out into the world and perform for people in person. But for now, it's great. Which could be a year. It could be a year. And even past that, you have venues that aren't going to be able to stay open. I know that um, there's some venues in Vancouver that are struggling because they're being shuttered. I don't know what people are going to be comfortable with doing after this is over or even before this is over, but after social distancing has been relaxed. I know that in BC, the province that I live in, in Canada, It's being relaxed right now. Yesterday, we had one new case of COVID in the province. That's a province of about 6 million people. So, like, it's a big dip downwards. And that's cool. But, I mean, protests are happening. There's going to be more community spread. So, who knows? But for now, it's sort of relaxed. And I can go out and have a meal in a restaurant. Although, (laughs) we had our first meal in a restaurant a week ago. And we got to the very end and we're like, man, that was great. And then I look in the bottom, or my wife Claire looks in the bottom of the cup of fries and there's a fucking straight up bug, like a wood bug, like a woodlose. Oh, in man. The...
0: <laughs> <laughs> what a way to get reintroduced to the
1: world. Yeah.
0: How about
2: clean out your cups? <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. We, we've not had any restaurants opened here yet. It's only right. like Starbucks and drive through McDonald's, and McDonald's doesn't sound that appealing, does it? No. <laughs>
2: no, it doesn't.
0: Definitely some gross shit in there. <laughs> don't you think that those social distancing shows are like the lamest thing ever? <laughs> it's it's like a, being a local band again.
2: Yeah, dude. I don't know what it's going to be like. It's going to be strange. People not moshing. I mean, it's going to be all like what everybody's comfortable with, and I always think this is strange because... We play a style of music that involves if the crowd is enjoying it, then they hit each other and like run into each other. <laughs> and so if they're not enjoying it, then they don't so you're gauging the crowd's reaction by okay if you run into each other then i'm doing a great job. So now what's it going to look like? I have no idea. It's
0: going to look like a local show. Yeah. At least at the beginning. At least at the beginning.
2: Yeah, i mean, i don't know. It's going to be strange. It's uh it, i think everybody's going to have to get used to a new standard for for at least like you said a year, but i mean, i'm sure even after that it's going to still take some time to kind of get back to a relative normal.
0: Probably. The thing, though, building a community online, I mean, that's kind of the way that lots of bands and artists get famous nowadays anyways. So you're kind of doing the thing you need to do to keep it going so that when it does resume, you can just jump right back in.
2: Right. I mean, it, not to mention there's also a different type of person that'll appreciate online material, online uh, like interaction more than going to a show. Um, some people don't go to shows very often. Some people that enjoy the band that I play in or the band that, uh, that John, you play in that don't necessarily go to a show. No. You want to know something? A hundred percent. I want to know something. Yeah.
0: I'll let you know something. (laughs) Your show at the summit was the first time I had seen a band live since 2013.
2: Wow. Okay. But you have to preface it by saying you were a hardened, jaded, unhappy, (laughs) <laughs> gruesome ex touring musician, above all.
0: Yes. I've been to over a thousand shows before that. So, yeah,
1: I understand. Yeah. I mean, we, we played <laughs> like literally, I think maybe 10 minutes away from Al's house when he lived in Florida. Mm-hmm. And we were staying at his house and he didn't show up to the show. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know. I don't know what happened. Yeah. I, I know. I know what happened. <laughs> it was sold out and you didn't want to be in front of people. I get it. Yeah. That's why I don't go to shows.
0: Yeah. I actually drove to the venue and then didn't go. What? You never told know me that. Told you that no, you
1: didn't. <laughs>
0: yeah. So I, I, the whole time I was like, I don't want to go. Like, I don't want to go. And I'm driving and driving and then I got there and was like, no, nope, I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> wow. you, all, you you almost got me.
1: That's fucking rude. <laughs> Sorry,
0: <laughs> think you can forgive me? That was 2014.
2: Uh, I'll think about it. Okay, cool. Was it was that uh, partially because of any sort of anxiety that you that you may or may not have? I'm not totally aware of. My
0: social anxiety is pretty low now compared to how it used to be, but uh, I was kind of in a dark place in 2014, right? And uh, did not want to hang out with people, yeah, in public. In that city.
1: I think to a degree, a lot of musicians have that sort of feeling. Um, I think the stage space is like their almost safe haven. Do you know what I mean? It's kind Mm -hmm. of where they can be themselves. And well, I say not be judged, but at the same time, you're kind of being judged, but you
2: can't see it. Right. I mean, mean, it's a, it's a weird thing to go to a show, especially in my hometown. If there's in Vancouver, if there's a metal show, then I'll go to the show. And because I played Vancouver so many times, Um, although we try to play our hometown, you know, no more than once every six months or something like that. Because you play so many times, you're like, uh, most people here kind of understand like who I am or what band I play in or something like that. Cause it's not a huge scene, but if there's 200, 250 people at a local show, I'll go there and I'll, it is kind of gives me some anxiety. Cause you're like, I don't want to be rude to anybody, but you know that some people don't They'll see you on the internet or on YouTube and they'll watch your videos and then they come up to you live and they don't know how to interact very well. And the social rules are sort of like strange and it'll be an awkward interaction after awkward interaction. And sometimes it's like, that sounds like a lot of work. Uh, I'm just going to stay home.
0: Yeah, I agree. There was something that used to happen to me and members of my band in Atlanta, which is why we decided to stop going to shows was because we would go to shows, to local shows, to support our friends, and people would recognize us. And then if we didn't stay for everything, it would become like this huge drama, like shit that we weren't even like thinking about. We just, you know, go to a show to go watch our friend's band, maybe watch one other band, then take off. And then it turns into like, these guys are Hollywooding us, too good to watch all the band, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, fuck, I don't need that kind of drama. Yeah,
2: you can't really win in that situation.
0: No, I do think that it is common for musicians to have social anxiety, but I do think that as you get older, it normally gets better. At least it's gotten better for me.
1: Right. Do you also think that part of it, like for me anyway, when I'm at a show and I'm not playing, I feel like I'm completely useless? Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I'm just,
1: I'm just kind of standing in the crowd, like wondering when I've got to move an amp or when I'm going to do something else. Because I also tech, so it's like... Yeah, I just feel completely useless. So I only really go to shows when it's like a artist that I really want to go see.
2: Yeah, I could understand that.
0: It's like a work environment. You just go hang out at other people's offices just for fun, <laughs>
2: basically. Yeah, I mean, that is kind of how it feels sometimes. You go to a show and it's like, man, I'll go do this 30 times in a month. It's like, uh, I don't want to listen to any more loud death metal. I'm good. <laughs> I already listened to all of it. Like, I mean, I don't know. So yeah, it is, it is just a work. It's a work thing. Although that's bad to think about it like that, but it's kind of impossible to not, I mean, it's your job. It's, I mean, I, our band has been full time as a band since 2018. Um, that's when I quit my job and I said, okay, doing this, we're going to support ourselves. And up until then we were making, you know, whatever kind of uh, supplementary or, uh, whatever, like a part of an income, essentially part-time job income. And then in 2018, we were able to be like, okay, now we can support ourselves with the band. And, uh, and it's hard to, to look at that, go to a live show after that and be like, this isn't just another workplace of mine. It's a weird switch.
0: It is a workplace. Yeah.
2: It is though. I
0: don't think that it's a bad thing to see it that way. I feel like that kind of goes along with being professional with your band and serious and, yeah. You have to view it that way. If you didn't view it that way, I think that a lot of things would get past quality control. I don't even mean in the music. I mean in how you conduct yourselves and right. like the whole other side of being in a band that requires you to be like a professional operation.
2: Well, I, I don't know how you guys feel about this. You probably feel very similar to me is that we, as musicians, we've undervalued ourselves as a community and we don't... Ever since I was a kid, I've always heard you can't make money playing metal. You can't, you will never make this work as a living. You will always have to say, have a secondary job or whatever. And to a certain extent, sure, that's true because of the unexpected income of it. And it depends on how entrepreneurial you are or how uh, how much initiative you have in taking on other projects or whatever. But making it as a full-time musician is totally possible. But for some reason, since I was a kid, I've always told myself that it's not.
0: I actually feel opposite because I was raised by a professional musician so and all his friends were musicians so my friends parents would say that kind of stuff like my high school band the parents of my friends would be like hey all you need to be realistic you know what are your college plans you know all that kind of stuff um, and telling me trying to tell me the reality of it all and then I'd go home and the reality for me is it's totally doable with music. So I never even questioned it. Wow. Um, and whenever people have said stuff like you can't make money in metal or just said you can't make money in metal, I'm going to figure it out. Yeah, totally. It is unrealistic though.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> to a degree. Let's be real. Definitely, yeah. But I also think that the, the people that tell you that are the ones that kind of followed the most simple path as well in terms of like they just wanted to get a job and get paid every single month on the same day. You know, I mean, it was kind of someone else's responsibility to pay them. But I think that anyone that has opened up their own business or something like that will know that it's possible. It's all about how much work that you put in. And as you said earlier, it's just about expanding your wings beyond just playing live
2: music. Well, in this day and age anyway. Yeah, you have to be able to look at it like how many streams of income can I set up so that if we don't tour for four months because we're writing an album, then I'm not going to... Uh, like being able to pay my rent or, or or whatever, you have to be able to set yourself up so that you're your own boss and you can. I mean, even I mean, teaching is the easiest way. You teach guitar. That's an easy thing to do. You can advertise yourself. You're your own boss. Nobody else is making money on your behalf. It's a hundred percent your own income, and you decide your rate. For the most part, you decide your hours. And I feel like once you take that step, then the other steps come easier because you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm not working for anybody else, but I'm playing music and I'm setting my own hours. Okay, well, what else can I do that's in this same kind of vein? And at that point, all the doors kind of open up and you sort of realize your full potential as a, as a full-time musician.
0: Do you mind sharing, not the numbers, but what your multiple streams are? The reason I'm asking is because that's what i always learned to do like that was that was what was always taught to me from the beginning was if you want to be a professional musician you need to have multiple streams like the day and age of a musician that's got one stream that's old school and yeah you know like That's from days when bands got to the size of Metallica right? or something. Yeah. Yeah. It just, it doesn't really happen
1: anymore.
2: Yeah. That was back from when people had handlers Yes, that had to wake them up in hotels when they couldn't get up or or whatever. Sounds like the perfect lifestyle. (laughs) 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 Yeah. I mean, I started teaching when I was 21 and I remember the first time I asked someone, uh, someone's parents for payment for a lesson, I was literally shaking. That's how that's how much anxiety. Yeah, dude. I that's how much anxiety I had from being able to imagine myself making money from playing music. That's like, okay, well, what do I what do I deserve this money for? I've only been playing for 10 years at that time. <laughs> I'd only been, you know, studying music theory on my off It only took me three hours to prep for this lesson because I was so nervous. I wanted to do the best job. It's like in my head, I still didn't think that I deserved the money, really. So I, I really had to work on that confidence. And then since then, I taught, and I taught part-time, you know, getting up to nine students a week or whatever. And and I did that for about five or six years. And then I, I quit my construction job because I got an offer to teach at a music uh, music store here in in Vancouver area. And I immediately had 40 students a week. And I was like, oh my God, like so nervous and scared. And every day I felt anxiety, like that kind of gut churning anxiety that you get when you go into a job that you're just terrified you're going to fuck something up or whatever. And I realized that it was not about my level of knowledge, not that I didn't work to increase that, but it was about my ability to keep a lesson fun and entertaining Leave the student with one thing as a takeaway, but also, yeah, like just babysit, essentially. And I was like, oh, this is a babysitting job for the most part. 70% of the students are under the age of 14. I mean, it's just a place for a kid to go to potentially enrich their life with music. And so I learned that and I gained a lot of confidence. I quit that when the band became full-time. And I decided to stop teaching privately one-on-one and start expanding the uh, potential for my earnings so that I didn't have to spend an hour at a time making X amount of money Now I can put out lesson packages where it's a passive source of income. I don't have to do any work past the initial setup and just say, here's this website with all these different topics that you can study and you can do it at your own time, at your own pace, and you can message me for any questions or whatever, but it's your own thing and it's very inexpensive. That was really the first setup that I had where I'm like, oh, I'm making money and I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything just now. I just got whatever, however much money in my PayPal account. And so once I realized that, I'm like, okay, now if I set up a couple things like this, so now I have a YouTube membership program where people get rewards if they like my videos, and then they can they pay a certain amount of money per month. It's like three dollars Canadian, which is like a dollar US or something. Like it's so like I get to pay you to like your videos. <laughs> yeah, well, that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. It well, is that's a good deal. I'm so glad that you were actually my first uh, member too, Ale. It's, it's so supportive of you for I doing know. that.
0: <laughs> I'm so cool.
2: But just like setting up lots of different things like that and trial and error, some of them don't work, and you're like, ah, fuck, I fucked that one up. Whatever. But some people will get to that point where they're like, I fucked that one up now I feel stupid. It's like, but you have to just keep going because people still are out there enjoying the music, wanting to support their, the artists. And they just want to be like, number one, they just want to be a part of something that is kind of outside of their own abilities or mindset or something. You know, not everybody can just turn on a webcam and talk into a microphone and and hang out with people and then put it on on the internet. Not everybody is comfortable doing that, but they oftentimes want to support somebody who can.
0: Man, I got to say on that topic, it is so fucking cool that this is my job. Totally. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, how is it that uh, I get paid to talk to people? (laughs) uh, It's it's pretty cool.
2: Well, I've actually said this to quite a few people. I think that you are one of the best interviewers or hosts of anything that I've seen in in metal. I remember the panels that you did at the URM Summit. I was like captivated by the way that you would allow the guest to talk, but also put in your own expertise and then ask a question right at the right time where this person was able to, to put in information enough, but not too, like, I I was like, whoa, this is like really professional because I thought you were just going to totally blow it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate the vote of confidence. Well, thanks. I actually work on this stuff. I follow really good interviewers, like Howard Stern or Rogan or any of those guys, and just pay attention to how they how they make it happen because uh, musicians aren't and engineers aren't necessarily the best at speaking. They're usually pretty interesting people, but they're not usually the best spoken people. So, and they're usually pretty guarded and, like we said, have social anxiety issues. And there's they're not like actors or radio personalities who just talk. Like talking is actually not necessarily what they do. So you have to really think about how to phrase questions and feel where they're at in order to get them to say interesting shit. In some cases, in some cases like you, you're just good at talking, but I think that that's rare actually.
2: It's something that you have to get past as a musician. Cause I sucked at it when I started and everything I did, uh, it, it sounded super awkward and shitty. And I'm like, man, I feel so stupid. But if you could just take a step outside of your body for a second while you're doing it, oftentimes it helps. Try to just get out of your body and be like, I'm just right now listening to someone talk rather than talking myself. I find that that helps me quite a bit. It's also thinking that the camera isn't
1: turned on a lot of the time. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's just like just being yourself. Because obviously, you know, when you're talking normally, you don't really think about the way that you're speaking or, you know, anything like that. The the phrasing, you're just getting on with it. Mm -hmm. But as soon as a camera's in front of me, as well. I've noticed this where I just turn into this obtuse prick almost, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Where it's like, I'm just too concentrating that there's something turned on in the room when in actuality, you should just feel like you're talking to your best mate. Right. The more
0: you do it, the easier it gets. I think that being on camera is a super fucking awkward thing, especially at first, especially for people like us. But for real, the only way to get over that is to just do it all the time. like Totally. I'm I'm sure that like now that you've done this many YouTube videos and the Twitch and all that, like it's no big deal to just film yourself or mostly not a big deal.
2: Well, I I think I think a big thing is musicians hide behind their instruments in a lot of ways. So you'll be up on stage. And I remember thinking when we went to that URM summit, I was like, I feel kind of nervous because I'm going to be up on stage and I'm going to put my guitar onto a guitar stand and not have it. And then just answering questions (laughs) as like a panel style. And I'm like, I can't, okay. So, but when I got there, I was like, well, I can just think about it. Like I'm here to add in some really stupid jokes. And I did. (laughs) There were great stupid
1: jokes.
2: (laughs) But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think as musicians too, you probably always, this is a tough thing to get over is that not everybody is always looking at you you know, like on stage, oftentimes musicians get a lot of anxiety because they think someone or everyone is watching every single note that they play. If they fuck up one note, everybody in the room is going to be like, well, I want my money back because no one's, (laughs) no one's watching. No one can even really hear what you're playing. Like, let's be honest.
1: But they will notice when you fuck up that note.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, (laughs) that that part is true. Yeah. For reference, the panel that
0: Dean's talking about was uh, Dave Otero did a, panel on well not a panel he did a like a two hour long presentation on tracking and arcspire happened to be the uh the guinea pig (laughs) so tracked live in front of the entire room which was pretty cool it was very fun yeah it was it was impressive and then also arcspire played a set so there are two different yeah, two different things that happen. Is
1: it pronounced archspire? I don't know. I always thought it was archspire. I don't know. I mean, probably because you're British. <laughs> that's what it, that's what it is, isn't it? We're going we're getting back to this: the American versus versus British uh, language. <laughs>
2: You and I are in the Commonwealth. We got Ao, who's in the U.S., which I that's mean, right. like, I don't know. I, is it a country right now? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how it's pronounced. Our old vocalist came up with it and he said, here's a list of words uh, that aren't words. They're made up <laughs> things. And we all said, oh, Archbar is the coolest one. I like, all right, cool. And that's it. So I have no idea what it means.
0: So is everyone in your band equally
2: entrepreneurially minded? I think that the passion that I have for filming, video, photography, that stuff has pushed me into like a a bit of just like a side kind of, I don't want to say hustle, but like a side hustle. That's why I want to say that word. Yeah, it's a side hustle. You can say that. I really, really like filming. My wife and I now have a collection of cameras at at our place. And I just, I love filming stuff. And so I got started by doing playthrough videos for people in the community, in the metal scene here in Vancouver, but also for artists that I really liked. So when we went on tour, I would say, hey, headlining band, whether it was like Upwarded or Revocation or uh, a couple of other bands, I'm like, do you want me to film your set, one instrument, every single night, one song, and then I'll piece something together, give me some audio, and I'll edit it together and give you a cool playthrough because I'm fucking so bored on tour that I have nothing else to do. (laughs) And that's kind of how a lot of it got started because I'm just like, I literally have nothing else to do. You guys probably both know this, deeply, deeply aware of the 23 hours of boredom that you experience (laughs) on tour. Yes.
1: Well, that's only really mostly when you're driving around the North American continent. Uh, In Europe, it's not so bad because, you know, the drives are much shorter and you can actually go for a walk around cities. But then in the States, you normally arrive at the venue 20 minutes before you have to play because it's a 12 hour drive. (laughs) Yeah, Ale (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry I'll lay it out better next time Canada's even worse (laughs) Okay, let's change the subject
2: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I totally know That when you're in Europe, you're on a bus generally And you got a table, you can get up And you can sit there And then you pull to the venue And you just get to eat something right away
0: Yeah, the sweaty cheese is so good (laughs) And the, the fucking 80 degree Sparkling water. Love that too. Yeah.
2: <laughs> at least you get something. We should change this podcast name to Sweaty Cheese because I like that name. Sweaty
0: Cheese. Dude, the Sweaty Cheese. Yeah. In Europe, they will lay it out at like eight in the morning uh-huh. and it'll stay there till like midnight. <laughs> yeah. The European crew members, like they don't mind. Right. They'll lick that sweat right <laughs> off. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I <laughs> <laughs> don't give a shit. But there is still that. I mean, you, you're on a bus. You're more comfortable than the U.S. generally, or at least in my my experience. But there still is a driving sort of boredom.
0: Yeah, I agree.
2: You know, and so I, I found that if I filled that time with editing some video, then it would it would help me out. And, uh, and then I started doing more of it at home, and I just, I just really enjoy it. Um, I know that a few of the other band uh, members of my band uh, are bass player, Jared, and the other guitar player, Toby Morelli, a nice small Italian man. They both teach guitar and bass, and other than that, Spencer does the occasional video.
0: And the occasional uh, Hollywood movie with uh, Aquaman.
2: Right. Yeah, that's actually interesting. For anybody listening who doesn't know, our vocalist, Ollie... He, uh, his brother is a special effects artist, and so Jason Momoa was in Vancouver working on something, and there was connections made at some point backstage or in the dressing room or somewhere, and Jason Momoa heard our band Archspire. He heard specifically the song "Calamus Will Animate," which starts with shot uh, like uh, gunshots, and uh, and I guess he like really fell in love with that song. And so uh, he came to see us in Vancouver at a show, and I was nervous because he was up on the balcony, and I was playing guitar, and I was nervous that he was there. But I'm like, wait, he's, because why the hell do I care what he thinks about my guitar playing? I don't give a shit. So you know, I like he's not, uh, you know, he he is. I'll say this: he's the most handsome man I've ever seen in real <laughs> life.
0: Oh, I believe it. I I believe that any anybody would probably feel like ugly.
1: Yeah. Next to that dude. Yeah. That's that's the guy from, uh, from Game of Thrones, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Season one. Yeah. The tall man, right? The tall
2: man. Yes, that's true. Yeah. He plays guitar, doesn't he? He plays bass, I think mostly, but he'll play like, you know, uh, a four string bass, like a Rickenbacker or like a Gibson, whatever. Like he's like a more of like an old school kind of, he's not a technical death metal bassist. So that was one of the things that I'm like, I was nervous, but then I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, he's enjoying the show, whatever. He's a total metalhead, right? As far as I know, yeah. I I really only hung out with him once or twice. After that show, Ollie and him started talking a little bit, and he was working on this new show called C, and uh, it came out on Apple TV sometime last year. And he wanted to have a big sequence where he had, like, almost like a, a war, like a battle rap style, like monologue. And he wanted Ollie's help with it. So he sent him some lyrics and they went back and forth for like a few weeks. And uh, they had something really cool. And I helped Ollie record the audio for it. Actually, you know, it's funny. We really wanted to come up with a cool version of this to show him. So he's like, that's what I want. That's going to be perfect. You're guaranteeing now we're going to work together on this project. And so uh, Ollie and I asked backstage at at the venue, come and take it live in Austin. And I was like, hey, do you guys have a quiet room that we can record on our phone, some vocal stuff? And he's like, oh, I have a isolation booth studio upstairs if you want that. So it just came out. We're like, okay. it had all these microphones and shit like that. Like it was, it made us look so pro because everything sounded great. I thought it was going to sound like shit. but So we recorded this whole sequence, put special effects, audio effects to it. And then we emailed it to him and he was really stoked. So he asked... Our vocalist Ollie and our drummer Spencer to be on the show with him for that scene. And so, if you watch that scene, they're all in full makeup, full gear. Ollie's blowing this crazy like war horn at one point. And yeah, they they uh, to be part of the scene, which is very cool.
0: I heard that they got to choose how they died.
2: I don't remember that, but I know that all. Ollie's choice of death is booze, for sure. Ollie's choice of death is (laughs) death by uh, alcohol consumption over a long period of time of his life.
0: (laughs) When when we did the last, the URM podcast, me, you, and Dave Otero, Spencer was going to be on it, and then he couldn't. But I was talking to him, and he kind of told me, because this was happening at the same time. Mm. He was like, you can't tell anybody about this, but here's why I can't do the podcast. We're doing this shit with Jason Momoa. I was like, okay, that's a good reason. That's a pretty good reason. Too bad I can't talk about it. (laughs) So now we're talking about it. So that's cool.
2: Yeah, I I think that they probably did get to choose their death. But I think with that type of project, there's so many people involved and there's so much creative input going on that some things have to get cut. And so their scene got cut pretty short, but you still get to see them in the scene. Uh, So maybe not everything that they filmed got actually put into the show.
1: That's still cool though, isn't it? Yeah, super cool. Pretty sick. Did it do anything
0: for the band? I mean, I guess it's kind of a stupid question, but not really. The reason I'm wondering is because we all know the Cannibal Corpse Ace Ventura story, and that was a tiny ass scene. Even though they're actually playing in it, it's it's that like catapulted them. Totally. Did this do anything for you guys, or is it just kind of cool? I think it was just kind of cool.
2: Yeah. I mean, it didn't, it didn't make our, like it rose our visibility as a band a bit, but I mean, I feel like for a lot of things like that, it does take a lot of things, you know? Yes. So it might've been another step upwards, but when you're talking about stuff like that, I think there is a misconception not that you have this but or not that you hold this misconception but there is a misconception that you're going to hit one project, one thing, one exposure thing and that's going to do it and then from then on you're going to have this crazy life as it's like you're set. Yeah. We made it. Yeah, I've, ar-
0: <laughs> I've arrived. The thing is so yeah, with the Cannibal Corpse example, yeah, it is the common thing to say that Ace Ventura catapulted them but what is not included is that they were already like the second biggest band in death metal or like it was them Deicide and morbid angel at the very top already for a long time. They had already been on Beavis and Butthead. I believe like they were already on headbangers ball a lot. Like they were part of the conversation. Yeah. Big time. They were a prominent band and then they got into Ace Ventura and they got even bigger, but it's not like they were, a local band got into Ace Ventura and then suddenly became the biggest death metal band on earth. Right. That's not how it worked. It's funny. Sometimes people think that like, I see this with locals a lot is they'll get, they'll pay for a guest spot for someone to do a guest spot on their record or a single. And they think that that's going to be what does it. It never does. Never does. It never even matters. Nobody gives a (laughs) fuck. They don't. They don't. (laughs)
1: It depends on the band, I think.
2: Yeah,
0: if you're Fred Durst and stained.
2: Yeah, as somebody that does uh, guest solos, paid guest solos occasionally, uh, don't listen to Ale. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Actually, you know what? I think with the guest solos, and I'm not backtracking, I actually think with guest solos, it matters a little more than guest vocals for some reason. Right.
1: I think it depends
2: on the genre.
0: I pay more attention.
2: Yeah. There's a big reason why instrumental music is not number one on the Billboard charts all the time. There's something about the human voice that really does, like, it does make uh, a connection with the audience in in a way that oftentimes an, an instrument... Can't. And so, yeah, I mean, if you have collaborations and stuff like that, absolutely. That's totally outside of my expertise. But, um, with a guest solo, I think it's probably just usually kind of cool, but you're probably right. It's, it's not the thing that's necessarily going to make, make your band. Um, it does just take many different, like projects and consistency and good product and, And being able to maintain the income disparity versus the overhead, the huge overhead as a band. And a lot of the times when people say, hey, if you heard this band? They're so sick. This Cannibal Corpse band. They were on this Ace Ventura movie or whatever. It's like, how many years as a band had they been uh, together before that uh, building this, you know, at the time, a smaller community? But, you know, it just takes so long and that's weird because oftentimes you have kids that are fans of your band and the guys in the band are like almost 40 and you're like this is the only time that you would ever be stoked on me as a person <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> the age disparity like it's like a 16 17 year old kid is a fan but i'm like almost 33 and like ah, eh, you wouldn't give a shit about me normally you'd be like oh, i'm gonna hang out with my friends but because i play a fast death metal guitar riff or whatever they're like oh cool but it's weird
0: Do you ever feel like people know you, think they know you as a person, just based off of seeing your videos and the band, like they kind of assume a relationship?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard not to do that. I remember hearing something a long time ago about when you see somebody's face. Very large, like on the computer screen, or you see a close-up of somebody's face on your phone or whatever. There's something about that; it does a certain thing to your brain that creates a power dynamic difference when you see that person. And then, if you ever see that person in life, it's the it's the same reason why we get shocked when we see Sylvester Stallone is like five foot six or something, because in our brains we imagine this huge figure that's inspiring and this big guy, but then you know, he's like a tiny little guy and you're like, Oh, what the fuck? You know, it's like super strange. <laughs> so I think it's pretty inevitable that that's going to happen if you're ever in any sort of public eye or doing your own thing. i not like I'm a public guy. I have like, you know, whatever. I have a small fan base of people that, that watch stuff, but when they do, and then they see you in person, it's, it's pretty much inevitable that that's going to happen.
0: Does that trigger your social anxiety at all?
2: Yeah, I think so. There's something about being put on an unlevel playing field where somebody knows something about you, but you have no idea who the fuck that person is. Uh, You guys both experienced that many times being musicians on stage people. They they feel like they have a connection to you, but you have no fucking clue who they are. And so they come up to you and they say your name and you say, cool. And then, but you're, you're now in this other position and you have to sort of make your way back up from there. If you're going to have a human conversation with that other human being. And, uh, it's very difficult sometimes to get, you know, it happens to musicians on a small level. You can be in a local band and that'll happen to you. You know, it'll happen all the time. And as you get bigger as an artist, it just happens more often. That's all.
1: Would you say that you go out of your way to sort of make people feel as comfortable as possible when they're talking to you? Because obviously the situation can get quite uncomfortable very, very quickly. So I know that it's something that I definitely do. So I'm just wondering if, because obviously the anxiety part of it from meeting people that you don't know, I kind of try and make people feel as comfortable as possible. I'm just wondering if it's the same for you.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a couple of rules that I've made for myself in meeting people that I look up to because you meet, let's say if you go to the Nam Expo in LA or in Anaheim, rather, you'll go walk around and you'll see Steve Vai walking around. You'll see John Petrucci walking around. You'll see all these, like my guitar idols. And if I ever want to have a good interaction with that person, I have to treat them like a person and I have to have a short, but potentially memorable conversation with them. If I ever want to uh, uh, have any sort of lasting friendship with anybody I look up to. Let's say, you know, somebody like Keith Marrow, who I'm a big fan of his music, killer guitar player. You meet this person, you already are at a, putting them at a disadvantage because you know something about them, but they don't know anything about you. And so a short, memorable, positive experience, and then you end the experience by shaking their hand or whatever and being like, cool, that was awesome." And if anything continues from there in a business side, a creative side, then that's cool. If not, there's 8 billion people to live on on planet Earth. Like, I mean, there's so many people. And so your life is going to take a certain path. So I find that I apply the same rules to people who know who I am, where I have a short, memorable, positive experience with them. And then I end it so that I'm like, cool, that was great. And both sides have a fun time. Uh, Some people don't understand. They want to hold on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't want to let you go. <laughs> which I can understand. I mean, <laughs> the good thing is that we have, we've
1: had that experience, you know, from firsthand, from being in those situations, which I think is probably why when it comes to talking to our idols, we are able to keep it short. I think mm. to a degree sometimes as well, these, you know, these, these people that turn up at shows, It's the, it's not necessarily they're trying to be that way. It's maybe just the lack of experience of being in put into that situation.
2: Well, do you have a story like that where you, you've met somebody that you looked up to and and you walked away going, ah, that was fucking stupid, you know? Ah, man. And then you take something away and you learn from that interaction. You're like, next time I'm going to do this instead. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: millions of them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I met Megadeth when I was 13. Oh, my and, God. And uh, made a fool of myself. Perfect. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I guess for me, it was when I confused Morten Hagstrom with uh, Thomas Hawker. Perfect. The first time I ever saw my sugar. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but I'm not I'm not into staring at like, you know, banned people on the internet. You know what I mean? I, you kind of don't see their face as well because it's covered in hair. So, and I was also definitely, I'd had a few. Do you know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite uncomfortable. Uh, but that, I mean, that was like 16 years ago now. So I was only, I was only, what, 18 at the time. So I just
2: learned from that, you know, mistake. Yeah. Was it something you kept in your brain where you're like, I remember that one time, and because of that, I'm never going to do X. I'm never going to do. Mine was. Yours was. All the time.
1: All the time.
0: Mm. I still remember it, and it still haunts me because in the Megadeth, they're like home video. They were talking about shooting the video for their song Holy Wars in some hangar or something, and it was like 100 degrees. And they drank gallons of water and didn't piss once. And, like, their drummer was like, what a bladder. And then when I met him and I was 13, I was like, what a bladder. And he just looked at me. (laughs) And I wanted to fucking die. And then (laughs) I, like, it stuck with me forever. Right. Like, don't ever say shit like that ever again. Like, Right. he He totally gave me that look. Like, he didn't know what I was talking about. And it took him, like, a moment to... Realized that it was a line from that interview, and yeah, it made me want to kill myself. (laughs) Brutal. I learned from that to try to not be an awkward fuck when meeting someone I looked up to.
1: Did either of you guys have any positive experiences with idols?
0: Yes. Okay. With uh, Mike Patton when I was like 18. Oh, cool. Yeah. I just went up to him on the street, treated him like a human. I just wanted to find out what his warm-up routine was because- He's fucking insane. Sure. (laughs) And I knew that he had time before he had to be anywhere. So I just went up and told him I was a big fan and wanted to, just wanted to know what he did to warm up. He was really, really cool. We kept it quick, but while we were talking, a bunch of punishers came up to him and started like basically licking his balls and, uh, (laughs) and he turned his back to them. And kept talking to me. Wow. Like he totally iced them out. That was like a turning point. It was super clear from that point on that you need to just approach these people like a regular human being, not fanboy them, not. Anything like it wasn't like you're such a great vocalist. I love you so much. Please bestow the knowledge of how to warm up properly. <laughs> right, God. Right, thank you, dear Lord, Pat. It wasn't like that. It was just I like your vocals a lot. I, res- I respect what you do. I'm just curious how you go about warming up for shows so you don't fuck up your voice.
1: Right. So what are you, Dean? What what experience for you?
2: I think that because I live in Vancouver, there's uh I don't know. I mean, like I'm trying to think of times where I met people that I looked up to and it didn't happen quite as much until I started going to Nam, and then it happened a lot. But it, it left a sour taste in my mouth because at that expo, you have a name badge, a big thing, and it has a certain color and it has the name, your name, and it's got whoever you're associated with. And I felt like everybody was always looking at that and then looking over your shoulder to see if there was anybody more important to talk to. And that always bothered me. And so I started to avoid meeting people that I looked up to. So I I mean like I don't know. I can't I can't think of necessarily like positive experience when I was when I was younger, but I can name a thousand experiences where I started to become friends with people that I looked up to. Let's say a big one for me is the, the guy who runs Season to Mist uh, US in Philadelphia. Yeah, His name is Gordon Conrad.
0: Oh, he's awesome.
2: He is responsible or at least in part responsible for so much music that I loved when I was younger. When I was in high school, he was running relapse or he was a, one of the guys that was, that was high up in relapse. He got Dillinger Escape Plan working for relapse. He helped them get their deal signed. He worked with Mastodon. He worked with Dying Fetus. He worked with Necrophagist. He worked with all of these bands, and these are all the bands that I love. And so I, I when I start when we started working with Season of Mist, which is a, an awesome label, um, we will be putting out our third Season of Mist album. Our next album will be our third release with them, and it's been amazing since day one. But when I met him and he started telling these stories and the people that he's worked with, he never bragged. He always put himself secondary and whatever, whatever else he was talking about, though, these artists or this is the thing to, to take away from the story. These other artists, whatever. But this guy really does have a big hand in forming what music I liked when I was a kid and what music released and how it got released. And so... There was like a moment where he texted me a few years ago some personal question or he asked me a favor or he asked my opinion on something. And I went like, wow, this guy who's responsible for so much of my like creative output as an artist is asking my opinion for something. That was like a turning point in my brain where I'm like, my life is really weird. So... It's a strange thing. Working in the music industry, working with people that you look up to, and then you start becoming friends with them. That's the weirdest moment that you'll ever have.
0: For sure. It's very surreal. It's super surreal.
1: I, I actually have a question just because we're talking about Season of Mist. So you guys are on a label? Yes. And you make money from the band. <laughs> this is their third. They're about to put out their yeah, third no, album. Yeah, <laughs> <I'm, I think laughs> they're, <yeah. laughs> but nice. they're on a label. How do you make money from music on a label? <laughs>
2: Well, we do get some support from the Canadian government.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Okay, yes. Now I understand it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's not a lot, but
2: it's enough to help
1: patch some holes. Yeah, okay, yeah. There's definitely holes when the labels are involved. <laughs> There's
2: definitely some holes,
1: yeah. Sometimes, but I've heard very good things about Seasons of are our, uh, our drummer used to play in a band called Disperse. Right. Who also signed to... Uh, Season of Mist.
2: Yeah. Yeah, Gordon's told me about them many times.
0: Wouldn't you say, though, that to expect to make money off of a label deal is naive, especially in this day and age, and that the way to make money as a musician now, especially if you're signed, is to view the label deal more as just a promotional vehicle to get your name out there, and then everything you do as a result, like Twitch and merch and all that stuff, that's the income.
2: Yeah, I mean— like, I don't want to give anybody any false ideas about how the band makes money. Royalties from album sales are minimal. They're helpful, but they're minimal. It's, you know, if and when you recoup your album cost, um, you know, if you're doing a good job, you recoup pretty quickly. Uh, You know, the ideal thing would be recoup with pre-orders and then you can make some money after that. And if you have a good label that works hard for you, then that's, they're destroying your album, putting it out there, giving you exposure, tour offers, all this kind of stuff. But, I mean, we make money from selling t-shirts, so our income from t-shirts, it's so important to consider that as just as high up as your music oftentimes, and to have a a good spread of merchandise that people come up to and they'll say, everything here looks different, but it all has what I want on it, and so I'm going to get four t-shirts— like that's <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you have a black and white one, you have a full color one, you have a simple one, you have a complex one. You have a, like we sell like we sell a shower curtain with our band's logo on it.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> metalheads take showers.
2: <laughs> we're encouraging metalheads. Is that heads right to take for showers. the demographic? Yeah, we're trying to make okay. it happen.
0: Make a positive impact.
2: We sell <laughs> uh, we sell socks with our band's album cover on it. We had ideas to sell hockey jerseys. If you can consider that, and also another thing too is we had our other guitar player Toby running our merch table up until last year, our overhead was low and we lived shitty on tour until we can make enough money from merch until the end of the tour and be like, all right, this will hold us over until a whenever. And on top of that, we also have tab books for sale. Like, I mean, as a band, we've have multiple income streams, just like, I'm sure you guys know, that's just as important as having a, a, a label that will push you, uh, And now you don't even really need that because you can do so much online promotion distribution yourself. And the weird thing is that people still buy CDs. I mean, it happens. (laughs) It's weird. Vinyls seem to be a lot more popular at the moment as well, don't they? For sure. Definitely, yeah. But I mean, like, even even when we sell however many CDs in a night on our merch table, we'll be like, I don't even have a CD player.
0: (laughs) Neither do I. Dude, I haven't had one in... Years, like yeah. at least five years, maybe longer.
2: It's weird. It's like, where are you playing this? But I guess a lot <laughs> of people still have CD players in their cars and they want to support the band. And it's just another piece. So I think the most important thing is to incorporate your mindset as a band. Everybody has to be thinking about every avenue so that you don't leave something overlooked. Because if a band goes in on a tour and they have one t-shirt or two t-shirts they're not going to make money. And you can have a sick label pushing you, having, giving you the best percentage or whatever. You know, you're not going to do well. You have to consider your merch as, a, as just as important as your music in a lot of ways. What about uh, guarantees? Yeah, I mean, that is also... Important, But I mean, hey, when you have the excellent Canadian government supporting your band, you don't have to worry too much about it. Although, you know, some of those numbers, you look at it and you're like, this is a very low amount of money for a band to get paid for five people plus two, two or three crew members. But... You know, you hit some back end on, on some of the shows. Whatever On our last European tour, we sold out four or five of the shows and the rest of them had great attendance. And it was our first time headlining in Europe ever. And I, we all consider that a big success. It's awesome. Yeah, it's really good. But then when you have a tour bus. Expensive. <laughs> those things are fucking expensive. Holy shit. They're so I, expensive. So who was that tour with, actually? So we headlined with Beneath Massacre, Direct Support, and uh, Volvidenia was two of four, and then a band called Inferior opened.
1: Oh, yes. I remember this tour now. Well, I'm glad it went so well. It was very, very fun.
0: I saw the pictures. The pictures you posted looked like it did super well. Do you mind talking a little bit about the Canadian government thing? I know that like people talk about that or like in Sweden that it's easier because musicians just get supported, but it can't be that simple. I don't think that you just get that support. There's got to be some hoops you got to jump through.
2: It's a single page form that you fill out. No, it's um, it's a big process for sure. <laughs> oh, just one thing. You mentioned the pictures that we posted. That's a very important thing too. Posting pictures in a certain way for your band. <laughs> It's making that crowd look as awesome as possible. That's a strategy that our vocalist, Ollie, has been experimenting with, really commanding the crowd to do certain things so that everybody squishes together in a way where the venue looks a certain way and you get a certain... That's not just that the tour didn't do very well, but you can make it look even better when you take awesome photos. Cut that out of the podcast. So, uh, <laughs> for real? No, 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 no. I'm just kidding. Okay. The uh, the Canadian government has a, an offshoot called Factor, which is like a federal program that supports artists that put out an album. They tour.
0: That sounds like a chemical weapon program. <laughs> Factor, <laughs> not a, an artist support program, but
2: Factor, the program that they have. Uh, they have several different types of grants that you can apply for. And then there's also grants on the provincial level. So we have the BC Council of Arts has, you know, X amount of million dollars per year to put in towards bands that go international touring and they bring back tourism to Canada. They bring attention to Canada. It's all under the name of bringing attention and awareness about Canadian arts. And so the federal program, we've been with them for four years or something. And, and we work with a great accountant that has a great relationship with them as well. And so, yeah, I mean, it's an application process and oftentimes you'll get bumped down. You'll hit a point where, okay, so here's an example. We uh, got nominated for a Canadian Juno award for our album Relentless Mutation that came out in 2017. So we lost, but it's not Like, that's a bad thing. I got awesome meal, amazing gala, dinner, event, all this crazy bullshit that happened. So it was very fun. The next day, we got bumped down for our grants. So there's some communication, there's some whatever. We eventually did get bumped back up, but certain levels of the grant system allow you to apply for certain amounts of money. And then there's a max per year. So yeah, you have to have an album that's come out in the last two years, so we have a two-year album cycle that you can get supported for, and then they have six months leading, leading up to another album release. And the longer you're with them, the easier it is to get them. But I'll tell you, the, the first time we got it, it's like, here's some money. You're like, what? <laughs> money? I was like so blown away that I was living in a country where I'm like, I get money for doing this? I mean, so I I feel bad for countries that don't do that. But you're right, Sweden is a big one. And I think that their program is even better than Canada's, as far as I've heard.
1: There's even Australia as well that have very good musician uh, grants. I mean, just as an example, even when you go there, they have particular plane tickets that are catered towards musicians. So you can have up to, I think it's 65 kilos. Right. As a musician, so. Of coke? (laughs) What? Of Coke? I was going to say, that's a lot of money.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you can traffic 65 kilos into Australia?
1: Damn, dude. Legally? No, it's yeah. within it's within Australia. So No wonder you guys <laughs> tour there so within much. Within Australia.
2: <laughs> Do you guys tour Australia quite a bit? We've been
1: twice, yeah. So we went last year and then we went for the, the last ever Soundwave in 2015. Oh, cool. That must have been great. It was. <sighs> Apart from not getting paid,
2: <laughs> I heard a lot of good things about that uh, about that festival. About how how well set up it was for so many years. I don't know about the last few years, but I remember hearing really amazing stories about the first few years.
1: It was definitely one of some of the best shows I've ever played
2: by far. Yeah, it was
0: really really good. And the fact that they fly everybody from show to show—that's like I can tell you from booking something like the summit, which involves like. Buying a hundred plane tickets for people and all that shit. Just that one thing is like so much fucking work. I can't imagine something like Soundwave that's a traveling festival where all the bands are, you know, every single band you deal with is its own entity with its own issues. And uh, getting <laughs> all those separate entities to like fly from city to city. Just imagine if one of those planes crashed.
1: Uh, it gets more difficult than that as well because when we were there, I think it was the same time that the Ashes were on. Now, if you don't know what the Ashes are, it's the cricket. Oh. So when, after we played in, I think it was... Oh, uh, that weird sport? It's a oh, weird sport. Is, is it really yeah. a sport? Pseudo baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they were going on at the same time. So we had to actually fly away from the city we played that weekend to go to Brisbane to then fly back to Sydney to go back to Brisbane again. So it was like a just because there was no hotels, basically. There was nowhere for any of the bands to stay. So loads of the bands had to take an extra flight. So imagine that just in, you know, a little bit of, of that.
2: <laughs> well, I know that the, because um, uh, we, we did Australia in 2018 and we did 10 shows, two in New Zealand, eight in Australia.
1: How do you play eight shows in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> well, we
2: played... Did you play in Newcastle? No. Darwin? No, nah, you wouldn't do that, surely? No, we did Perth we did two shows in Melbourne? I mean, okay, so the, the music union in Australia, they uh they give unlimited baggage to musicians, as far as I know. So when you sign up in a certain kilos. way, you get like that crazy hookup with the musicians union in Australia.
1: Interesting. Sixty-five kilos.
2: Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was just sixty-five. Yeah, interesting. Okay. We had like thirty or forty bags with us and we had two touring Holy bands. Shit. I mean, it was, it was like the most anxiety, like you're looking at this amount of baggage. It was like, <laughs> that's too much. That's too many. That's but then they all went in and it was all good and but that was only with uh I think Virgin Australia which I think is the only thing anybody there flies anyway I think that's the 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 main airline as far as I know
0: that's what we flew to get there when we did nail the mix there
2: oh you did nail the mixer
0: yeah it was a phenomenal experience
2: mm, who was that with
0: that was with a Carnival and a Forrester Savelle. wow cool it was really really cool I want to go back. Dude, it's so amazing. I really like the people there. I think people who haven't been there don't understand the scale of that place. It is fucking enormous, and there's like nothing in the middle. There's nothing (laughs) in the middle.
2: Yeah. Um, Have you guys done Japan before? I toured there. I've been there, but I've not toured there. I mean, just being there, that's like out of all the places that I've been to in the world, that's the place where I'm like, I could probably live there for a bit. That place seems pretty cool. Best tour ever. Dude, it's so cool there. I love that place.
0: Basically, I think touring in Japan for me was like, if there's anything that ever came the closest to the ideal of a rock and roll experience, like the way it should be, like the way that you always imagined it as a kid, I guess, with like every single detail that you do it for, it was there, yeah. and perfect.
2: <laughs> Plus, everything, yeah. everything you touch sings to you. It's all like, bee doo doo. you like take a shit, and the toilet's like, doo 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 doo. it's like, that's just so cool.
1: And it's heating up your ass, so you feel like you've shit all over your ass. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, why did you go to Japan, John? Yeah, because I wanted to shit all over my ass. Obviously. Oh, great. Oh, okay. <laughs> great. No, I did. Yeah. I, I did some videos for a, for a guitar company over there. Uh, it must have been what two thousand and. Yeah, it was 2015 as well, actually. Yeah, so I went to Australia, flew back, toured with Carnival, and then flew to Japan. So it was a pretty busy, busy time. But yeah, I was there for, what, I think four days? Um, did you guys ever experience Shibuya meltdown when you were there, where all the people in their suits try to keep up with their bosses and they've vomited all over the street and they're lying with their heads on their laptop cases? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking <laughs> no, about. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I want care to elaborate (laughs) okay right shibuya meltdown shibuya is a district of tokyo there's actually an instagram page for this and it's phenomenal i wholeheartedly recommend that you check it out yeah basically i am people who work in offices try and keep up with their bosses end up getting far too drunk and at 8 p.m at night there's people lying in the street with vomit around them what do you mean by keep up with their bosses well you know like they try and like keep up drinking with their bosses (laughs) yeah So the assumption
0: is that bosses can drink more than the employees?
2: Now, that was a question I also had. Yes.
0: Yeah. This is what I wasn't understanding. It's like...
1: Yeah, I guess that's kind of what it is. It's just, you know, years of drinking whiskey. <laughs> wow. You know? Whoa, yeah. these people are laid out. <laughs> You're actually checking page. it out right now. Yeah. It, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty magical. One dude's sitting in
0: a fucking urinal.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's, pretty, uh, it's pretty magical. I'm surprised you guys didn't experience it um, while you were there. No. No. Holy shit. Like... On the subway,
0: like in a urinal, like on stairs, just these people are feeling the pain.
2: <laughs> it's a big part of Japanese culture to show how hard you've worked by falling asleep in transit, falling asleep on the on the train or, or whatever, right? So if you see somebody in, in the train taking whatever, they're in a suit, if they're asleep, it's like a cultural thing. Like that person has worked themselves so hard that they've fallen asleep on the way home. And so maybe that's the same thing with booze. <laughs>
1: Or they just got too fucking drunk the night yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it too.
2: But Dude, this is insane.
1: So the subway reopens again, I think at five o'clock in the morning. So these people will wake up, get on the tube, and then go straight back to work. Wow. <laughs> Fuck that.
0: God, Japan is such a magical place. Dude, it's so it is cool. Shit. Yeah, it it's so cool. It is, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It's like yeah, the best food, mean-
2: best food ever. Like, just oh, it's great food.
1: Hey, and, 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 hey, Al, there's even Wendy's there. Huh? <laughs> Fuck Wendy's. That's the thing I did not
0: understand when I was there with my band. Like there's so many food options, and I just wanted to go to McDonald's uh, the whole time. Fucking Americans. But, uh, <laughs> let's talk about your playing some because we haven't touched on that at all.
2: Oh, I forgot that this was a guitar podcast. Yeah, I remember? <laughs> I literally <laughs> that, forgot that. Thing. That wasn't a joke. I, <laughs> I actually forgot.
0: If we only talked about guitar, that would be boring. But we should talk about guitar because you play guitar. I do. Yes. Do you still practice? Like practice, practice?
2: Yeah. uh, I'm trying to put my practice out there so I can, in some way, monetize the practice. So those videos
0: you make where it's like you trying to learn a song, yeah, which are really cool, by the way. Thanks. Even though I can't watch a whole one because it really is you trying to learn a song, <laughs> I've skipped around. I've skipped around and been like, wow, he is actually learning the song.
2: I've since stopped doing that exact format. Now I'm I'm taking an hour or two or whatever, and I'm condensing it down to a digestible fifteen minutes, complete with dumb jokes, funny editing, and all that kind of stuff. I was. So into this idea of doing long form stuff. I think secretly I was like, I don't want to edit it. Right? I was like, ah. But then (laughs) I realized, we did, my wife and I did a couple videos together where they were edited and it was her idea. And we put together a couple of videos and they did really well, or at least in comparison to what I usually had. And I was like, Okay, I guess we got to start doing that. And then since then, I haven't gone back to a regular uh, long-form video. But what I do is I'll, I'll practice our set list on Twitch. And so I'll put in tips about practicing. I'll show people what I'm working on. I'll work on picking things, answer people's questions, and then put basically a set list of music together. And then and then people will hang out with me and watch that. That's a cool way to monetize my practice. Because honestly, outside of practicing with the band three weeks before our tour practicing the set is not high up on my priority list
1: you practice for three weeks before a
2: tour yeah we usually do for three weeks something like that
1: yeah. wow that's a lot is that that's, that's a lot yeah we normally get in one or two days right do you guys all live
2: in the same city no mm. that's a benefit <laughs> that we have
1: uh yes yeah. so I, I guess yeah i mean yeah to a degree yeah i guess that's uh i mean you'll be super tired at the end of the three weeks that's always sick
0: we used to do that too, two two to three weeks before a tour. Yeah, that's a good amount of time.
2: When we practice, it's sort of strange because the way that we have our live setup is we have in ear monitors, as I'm sure both of you guys do or did or, or have worked with those before, but we don't listen to each other. We listen to stems. So we'll play along to a click track, and then I'll have a mix of the album stems minus myself that I can control from my phone. And so I'll be playing along to edited, perfect guitar, and uh, and that's my comparison. So I don't have to do that with the band. In fact, I literally can't hear what any of them are playing. So oftentimes we'll play with our amps off and no triggers going through the PA and our vocalist doesn't have a PA in our jam space. So it's literally all you can hear is drum cymbals and snare if you were standing outside of our door, but the whole band is practicing. So why
0: are you practicing then? Why are you guys rehearsing then? Yeah,
2: I don't know. <laughs> Doesn't that eliminate the need? I think it's accountability is a big thing. Making sure everybody is doing it. Fair enough. Yeah, because it is easy to just be like, well, nobody else can hear me play. I'm going (laughs) to fuck up this part, but the other guitar player is not going to be able to hear it, so he'll never fucking call me out on it. So, I mean,
0: I'm sure there's your own little dramas and stuff, but you guys operate like quite a unit then because, I mean, my only experience with you guys was when you played, but... You guys were on your shit. Thanks. Yeah, not kissing your ass. It's just the way it was. You guys were on your shit as a band and as players. And so to hear that you guys are kind of in your own little world makes it more impressive because it means that everyone is actually pulling their weight, which is rare in bands, actually.
2: I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we've been a band practicing for three to four times a week for 10 plus years. We didn't practice to a click, and then we did, and then we didn't practice in years, and then we added those, so it sort of built up. But I mean, up until recently, we were also writing music five days a week for before coronavirus, we were getting together five days a week for maybe four months straight every week, getting into the jam spot, working on new ideas. And so we're like, we are very tight with each other. And when we write stuff, we also write to a click track and we hear each other and then we'll switch to live mode and we won't hear each other, but we'll all be so used to practicing in that style that it really only takes a week or two for us to kind of get back into shape. You guys must get along. Next question. (laughs) No, no, no. Uh, Honestly, it's we get along in some ways too well that I find it's very hard to integrate anybody new into our group. It takes too long. People get too frustrated because it's years and years and years and years of inside jokes that don't make any fucking sense. And and we're so tight in, in so many ways with our mentality that it's, It's like, you know, we all have the same opinions on similar things. So if somebody comes in, they're like, yeah, yeah, but you guys know Led Zeppelin, right? They're great. And we're all like, get out of our van or, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) like some stupid thing where it's like, yeah, but how about this rock and roll guitar uh, solo? And it it like, it's just become so, uh, so like one-minded in a lot of ways that it is hard to integrate anybody new, let's say crew members or, or anything. But, uh, but we do have some awesome crew members.
0: When you're writing for Arcspire, do you write together? The reason I'm asking is because I asked this last week too. It's just metal is a weird style of music to write with other people because there's so much noise and just commotion going on, especially when you get two guitar players in a room. And then taking into consideration the fact that you guys play at like 700 BPM, <laughs> do you guys write together? Like,
2: yeah. Yeah. Well, that's all we pretty much all we ever do. How? <laughs> well, in your monitors have really helped. The most we'll do is let's say for the last album, I came up with a minute long section of instrumental clean guitar that had a bass line, my guitar part, and then Toby's guitar part. That's the most I'll ever do at home. Everything else happens in the jam spot. And oftentimes it'll be an hour of us sitting there and no one has a single idea and we'll play random notes until something sort of comes out and someone will say, Hey, that one part sounded kind of cool. And then we'll play it again. And they're like, no, you're playing it differently now. And it doesn't sound good anymore. And then we'll stop. And then we'll be so frustrated at the end of two or three hours that someone is like, ah, fuck. Okay. Well, I guess we just leave. And then one person will be like, yeah, let's leave. And they'll play one thing. And someone's like, Hey, what was that? And then that'll start a whole, like it's, it's a series of frustrating conversations. We have this element of distraction in our jam spot, We jam in a horrible, piss-soaked hellhole. It's the worst place I've ever been to. It hurts my throat. It's moldy. It's gross. And so we want to leave as soon as possible. I'm painting a really good picture here. (laughs) But we have an element of naming each one of the riffs something really stupid that it's, like, hard to say it without laughing. So, like, something stupid like, uh, oh, my God, some of them are so brutal. If somebody misses a jam, a writing session, we'll name every riff after them. And on that day, so it's like the race to get something out that day so that let's say our vocalist Ollie was gone and we'll be like, okay, well, this riff is called old, fat, balding alcoholic or something like that. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Or like has a terrible relationship with his father or something like that. And you're just racing to get this riff out so that he'll have this thing to come back to. But oftentimes that takes us just as long to write as the riff name does. So you're trying to balance these two. And so it keeps it kind of light and kind of fun and it breaks up the monotony. But yeah, I mean, we write together and, and if and if I'm not there, then I get Dean's balding or Dean, you know, like less <laughs> stupid YouTube videos, more good riffs. You know what I mean? Like something like that. And if you come in and if you react in any way, everybody screams in your face. It's a horrible environment. <laughs> it's not not productive. <laughs>
1: I've never known many metal bands nowadays anyway that write actually together. Yeah. It's quite uncommon. Yeah, it's it's not
2: common. Especially for music as complex as yours. Yeah. I mean, that's how we started and that's how we want to continue. We don't write with Guitar Pro. We don't tab stuff out while we're doing it. Because, I mean, you go see a band live. Oftentimes you can tell if they didn't jam it out before they recorded and wrote the song and then went to go play it live. Like, we want to jam it out so that we can get a feel for how we hear it in a live setting in our jam spot. And then, you know, because that's a big tell of if you're playing it and you, you feel like this part's going on too long while you're playing it live with a group of people, then you can say that and you can work on it together as a group and everybody has to be unanimous on every decision. Otherwise, we don't do something. So we'll have a riff and four out of five people love it. One person hates it, then we don't use it. So it's an extra series of filters that we have to keep our music like at the quality that we want it. But also it means that writing takes a long time. I guess
0: I'm surprised, but not surprised. The reason I'm surprised is just because of the level of complexity and speed involved. Yeah. That just, it makes it, it makes it hard to imagine writing that together. Like we spoke to Mark Heilman from Suicide Silence last week, and he told me that they write together, but that makes sense to me because of the style of music they play. Right. It makes sense that those riffs are, like, jammed. But the thing about you guys that stands out to me is that, and I thought this from the first time I heard it, is... Uh, Technical death metal has kind of become very non-musical in the past many years, I guess, since Necrophagist almost. But then I heard you guys and I was like, wow, they're actually making music with this. this. is really cool. And I think that one of the reasons that it started to become non-musical was because people stopped playing together. They started writing with Guitar Pro. Totally. Yeah, it, they started writing things that weren't actually doable on the instrument. And so to hear that you guys still keep it real despite how insane it is, it kind of makes sense. I guess it kind of explains why it's actually music.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I don't, I don't want to say that the genre has gone in a bad direction because there's so many amazing bands even now, but you're right. There is now there are, yeah, but you're right. It does feel strange to play music that you never jammed out as a band before. You write it in Guitar Pro and then you send it to the other guitar players and you practice it at home and then you go to the studio. It's like whoa! I don't know how often that really happens, but I do know that plenty of guitar players only, almost exclusively, use Guitar Pro and then they'll piece riffs together on on a DAW and it'll be it'll have a certain vibe to it.
0: Oh, it's two things. I think for a while the genre did stale out. I think it's on an upswing now. I think music in general is on an upswing. Like there was a time period around 2010 like if that's the median point where I think a lot of music was getting stale because of new production techniques and writing techniques. Totally. Musicians hadn't caught up to the technology. Right. And so the technology was winning. And I think that musicians have adapted to it. And so that's why I think there's like a lot of great music to have come out in the past few years. And it seems like music's getting better again, but I will tell you as a producer that you can totally tell when someone has written something on Guitar Pro mainly cuz they can't fucking play it. <laughs> that's like that's that's the dead giveaway.
1: <laughs> that's generally it. I mean if you're using Guitar Pro as a tool like say you've got your guitar in your hand and you're writing something and then you think, oh, that's not quite right. That's different. Then then you change like one or two notes about it and then the essence of the idea is still there. But I think that just sitting in front of a computer tapping random notes until something cool comes out isn't really music to a degree.
0: That's what I'm referring to. I'm not talking about someone who uses it as a tool because if you use it as a tool, it's the same as someone writing down notation back in the day or tablature or whatever. It's... It's just the evolution of that. But I'm specifically talking about people who never pick up the guitar ever and just program it. And actually, some program music's really good. Yeah. Like, I have nothing against program music. It's just there's something about when you program Guitar Pro and don't actually tie it to what's actually happening on guitar, there's a disconnect.
2: Yes, a disconnect. So when I was teaching full-time, one of the things I would enjoy doing is sitting there figuring out how to play a song by ear with a student while they sit there. And it's it's a challenge that I wanted to give myself, but also it helps the student understand that music isn't as sort of Maybe difficult as you you have it in your head. You hear these notes and you're like, how could someone ever play it? But then when you see it on guitar, you're like, oh, he's a human. He has fingers. He or she has fingers. They're playing it a certain way. That's what it looks like because of all the years that they spent building up their technique. They started with the pentatonic scale. They went to the, you know, all the modes of the major scale or or whatever. They learned this blues lick and, and you can see it in there and you can figure out something by keeping in your mind, somebody with hands wrote this music on this, Instrument, but there's a different feel entirely when you're learning something that somebody wrote exclusively on Guitar Pro. The shapes are like alien. You know, the shapes don't. You know, it it might sound cool in a lot of ways, but it also is removed in some way from the instrument itself, which uh, which is yeah weird to learn, to say the least.
1: It's also to do with those voicings. That's kind of what it is. Like it might sound like those chords that are written in Guitar Pro might sound good when it's played back in that program. Yeah. But it's to do with how the different octaves and the timbres of the string actually intertwine when you put it on an instrument. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that's like a big thing, like the actual way that the, the... because you know how it is. You can play like the same chord in multiple different places and it each sounds different. Yeah. So I think a lot of the time that is what the problem is, is that yeah. it's not been heard on an actual well, an instrument that's completely out of tune all the time.
2: (laughs) Right, yeah, all the time. Yeah, Yeah. And our ears have just adjusted to this sort of messy instrument that sounds kind of shitty a lot of the time, but, you know, it's like whatever. I mean, sometimes I'll be playing something, you are coming up with an idea, and I'll be like, man, this chord sounds great. What is this? I'm like, that's an E major chord. What the fuck am I doing? Like oh, okay, but because it's voiced differently, you're like, okay, but there's something different about this. I'm not like a purist when it comes to musical stuff. I think that if you can play a guitar with fucking laser beams for strings, like, let's do that. That's sweet. Like, like all for technology, enhancing stuff. I think I saw that
0: at Nam one year in the basement. Uh,
2: yeah, dude. You, you got the drum set where people are playing without any drums in front of them, and it's all motion capture or whatever. That stuff's sweet. I mean, we toured with a band, Despised Icon, and they have, as far as I remember, the kick pedals had a, a laser that got, when you pushed down the pedal, it it broke the connection and it triggered the sound so you could have, like, I mean, that stuff is so cool.
0: Laser triggers. Yeah,
2: laser triggers, dude. Awesome. It's so cool, and I think pushing the, the genre or or music in general like that, I mean, it's inevitable. And I also think it's really cool, but at the same time, I like it when you can hear a guitar player fuck up. And I like it when you can hear a guitar player's, I don't know, not the emotion, but like. The expression, right? It's like the movement of the hands and strings, basically.
0: There's so many little details, like micro bands, the gap, the physical gap between notes, like all those little details that if you were to program that, I guess someone could do it, but That's quite a task to just do those things that naturally happen when you play.
2: Yeah. I talked about this the other day on a video that one of the things that guitar players do that's unfortunate is that they compare themselves to Guitar Pro. And that's just not fair. I mean, that's just a robot playing your music it's literally perfect. There's no fuck ups. There's no gap between this run and this because the technique doesn't work well. The guitar pro program doesn't have to worry about inside versus outside picking. It doesn't matter, you know? And so we compare ourselves to that and that's led to insane players. Like you guys had Jason Richardson on here. Yes. That guy (laughs) is technically and compositionally as well. One of the craziest players to be alive today, in my opinion. I agree. He's unreal. His ability on the instrument and the stuff that he's written is so cool. And that comes from he he and I are relatively similar age. I think he's a couple years younger than me, but he and I both grew up with the same idea, where it's you're playing along to tabs. And we did compare ourselves to Guitar Pro, but I do feel like there is a negative thing about that that maybe is discouraging for people, especially young guitar players now, where Even the music you've listened to is edited to shit and perfect.
1: Yeah.
0: What's the deal, man? How is he that good? Like, I have no idea. I've known him a long time. Okay. So like, I know how hard he
2: works, but it's fucking ridiculous. Yes, it is ridiculous. I've tried to play a couple of his songs for videos and I'll be like, Man, I got this up to 70%. I I don't see myself getting any faster uh, with this up to the tempo of the song. And you watch him play at performances, and you're like, this dude is literally playing this stuff. I think the thing to keep in mind is that we all have our strengths as guitar players. And so, like I said earlier, with the pentatonic scale, I started. you started with this, and and, uh, as a kid, when you were 13, between 13 and 15, you practiced the shit out of this Metallica solo. And this Metallica solo has this one picking pattern that you didn't realize, because you didn't... didn't give a shit that the picking pattern is really difficult and people were struggling with it. But for some reason your practice was efficient enough and you got that and that made its way into your playing and all these different kinds of crevices and you didn't notice. And then now you're in your mid twenties and your style is affected so deeply by that one thing that you learned because of the difficulty of the technique. It, it found its way into everything else that you write. All your composition is now affected by your technical ability. And if you're writing on guitar, People are going to try and learn your music and they're going to be like, what the fuck is this? And you're like, oh, it's just this little thing that, but it's, it's a thing that no one else practiced to the degree that you did. And, uh, and I think that's what people's style is, is those things. There are those things that you learn that you didn't think much of when you were younger, but now that's how you sound just by circumstance or by what you enjoyed or what your parents showed you when you were a kid or what your older brother showed you or whatever. That makes sense. That's what he must have done. I mean, he practiced the shit out of this certain series of techniques and it led him down to this path. And now here he is better at all these techniques than uh, someone else. And I don't want to get too comparative, but it's like his technical ability is almost, in my opinion, unmatched.
0: Yeah. It's insane. I can't think of where it's matched.
2: The only person that I could consider in a similar and like I said, I don't want to get comparative because everybody is so different and it's not healthy to really be comparative, but when I watch Raphael, who was in Obscura up until recently, Rafael Trujillo, his composition and his technical ability is I think he's one of, if not the most technically proficient and amazing guitar players in the genre of death metal that I've seen. Rafael Trujillo. Dude.
1: Yeah. He's phenomenal. I'd also say that Andy James is well up there as well when it comes to yeah. That technically really fast and clean. Yeah. Like I remember the first time I saw Andy play and I even when I see him play now it's like how have you got it that clean where each individual note has that amount of definition. Like that's what they've been practicing I think. It's the I think it's the definition of the notes at that tempo. Right. It's just insane. Yeah, he's very good. It's very very good, yeah. Very good and I'm get guess- um Raphael's probably the same. It's probably what they've been focusing on. I just looked him up. Former president of the Dominican
2: Republic. That sounds like him. Yeah, I don't know him. I don't know too much about his life, but that's it's it pretty much in line with what I know.
0: Assassinated May thirtieth, nineteen sixty one. Sound about right. That might not
2: might not be him. I toured with him okay. in twenty eighteen, so I don't think that's him.
0: <laughs> probably not. What role did a uh, rhythm? play in your practice? Just curious. Cause I mean, you know, people focus on fans tend to focus on the leads and all the fancy schmancy shit, but, uh, you know, your rhythms are insane. Like, was that something that you worked on, worked on or?
2: Mm, I think the way that I started playing guitar when I was a kid, just like anybody was you play low down to start and then you move up. And so I think that my low down stuff, playing crazy train and stuff like that, your hand turns into a certain shape. And then I was able to sort of keep that same shape as I go up and I have a a level of comfortability up on the high register as I do on the low register. And I've sort of kept that kind of static looking kind of right hand and I I keep that with my playing. So my rhythm has improved with my lead playing in, in a lot of the same ways. I mean, the bands that I liked when I was in high school, Opeth has lots of amazing riffs that, I mean, I learned the entire Still Life album and there's some awesome heavy I didn't actually know it because I didn't listen to Morbid Angel, but very Morbid Angel-inspired rhythm riffs, mm-hmm. you know? And I actually listened to Morbid Angel after I listened to or- to Opeth, and I was like, oh, shit, that's where they got all this stuff. Oh, okay, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, and he's a great, Michael's a great lead player, but his, you know, the rhythm riffs that he writes are very unique, and and that's what I practice quite a bit of. I don't necessarily put too much of a emphasis on practicing rhythm when I'm at home. Oftentimes, my lead parts... I turn riffs, or rather I write riffs after I develop lead parts. I don't generally start in the low register when I'm composing. Oftentimes I'll write something up high, and then I'll be like, uh, how can I put something low to this, and I'll come up with something that way. One thing that I could say that I, I put a lot of emphasis on is clean pinch harmonics. And that is an inherently rhythmic kind of thing that you put in, in death metal, chugging riffs with pinch harmonics that are a certain way. I, I really put a lot of emphasis in, in, into those in my practice. How deep do you get into technique on this podcast?
0: As deep as you want to go.
2: I, my favorite What's type of pinch, pinch <laughs> 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 I, uh, my favorite type of pinch harmonic is the type where it goes up a minor third. You hit this pinch harmonic, it starts slow and it goes whoop, and it ends at the absolute highest point that you can get. And I I have practiced that for hundreds and hundreds of hours, trying to get that exact pinch harmonic, as well as keeping my vibrato pinch harmonic really rhythmic. So the vibrato in the note should keep consistent with the vibrato or with the rhythm of the song that you're playing in. So those two things are are really important to my rhythm playing, I think. And I put a lot of practice into that. But only because I enjoy playing them
0: <laughs> when you say a lot what do you mean?
2: when I was in high school I was practicing in the summer oftentimes six to eight hours a day and then when I was in teaching uh, I like I never took a break in my guitar playing I've always been playing guitar I never took a year break or six months break or whatever the most I took was like my wife and I went on our honeymoon it was two weeks and that was that's and that was in 2018 so it's like that's the most I've ever that's the biggest break I've ever taken in my guitar playing since I picked up a guitar as far as I can remember. So I've always kept a pretty good practice schedule. But when I was teaching, I would oftentimes spend all day, you know, five hours, six hours or whatever. I would play before I went to work, play at work, and I would work on chromatic exercise while I was watching a student figure out a chord, you know. So I would consider that, try to consider that part of my recording or part of my practice as well. And then when I would go home, I would try to write stuff. So I don't know. I mean, nowadays I'm lucky to get... Uh, six hours of practice in a day or something. Oftentimes it's more like three or four. And then nowadays it's sort of been a new normal where I'll have a day of the week where I don't play guitar. And that's kind of refreshing because my entire life so far, my most of my life I've been playing guitar and it's always felt weird for me to do that. But now I can actually justify it a little bit. It's like, hey, I do this for a job. I'll take a day off.
0: Do you think that There's a time period in any musician's life where they do have to do the, you know, the five to seven years straight of six to eight hours a day if they want to get good. And then obviously as they get older, maybe they don't need to do it as much because they have that muscle memory and those uh, neurons firing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that there are some exceptions like Paul Gilbert or if you guys know Sims Cashian. Yeah. There's some exceptions where these people are at a young age- Unreal amazing. Uh, You watch Paul Gilbert when he was 17, or like Jeff Loomis, you know, like those guys were amazing at a young age and not just fast, but also expressive and clean. And they were composing cool stuff. That doesn't happen very often. So I would say the reason why those people were, like that is probably because they condensed that, like you said, six or seven years down to two years or three years. And a big thing that I try to push for any of the students that I have or anybody that I'm talking to about guitars, the honesty of your practice is as important as the amount of time you put in. If you're practicing something and you're like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. And that's your bar. That's your level of acceptable playing. And it doesn't sound really good. And you kind of know that then you're only doing yourself a disservice. And then other people that listen to your guitar playing who have ears, they'll also be hearing the product of that. So an honest practice schedule. And I mean, above all to having fun playing guitar is pretty important. So not everybody has as much fun playing the instrument and that's fine. You know,
1: I think that that's why technology is so great because I don't really think that a lot of people listen when they're playing the guitar They're not actually actively listening to what they're doing. And that's where recording comes in because now they can hear just how far off the metronome they really are when they're practicing. So I think that that is such an important part of practice now in comparison. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Jeff Loomis had one of those old style metronomes and was jamming to it when he was a kid. But I think that back then it wasn't as much of a requirement as it is now, especially in metal. So I think that that's why, I don't know if you've noticed in the last few years, but the bar is definitely raised with the amount of great guitar players that are coming around. But I think that's probably why those, uh, for lack of a better word, freaks happened in those times, because they actually practiced the metronomes.
2: Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. And and being able to hear yourself play is also huge, recording and hearing back, because I took a really cool lesson from a dude about Hacks tone building, because I'm not really a tone guy. I'm like, whatever. I'll get something that works and I'll just use it. But he was like, if you can build your tone by recording a DI and then putting your guitar away so that you can't feel the vibration of the guitar through your entire body, because that'll affect the way that you hear yourself playing. So it affects you so much that oftentimes it'll uh, warp the way that you think you sound. So hearing yourself back is so huge. And it's a tool that... Oftentimes people are intimidated by starting to use They'll look at an interface nowadays. It's the cheapest, most easily available thing you could possibly do is to get for a musician to help your playing is to get an interface and everything after that is free. You can get free VST plugins. You could do whatever. And so now hearing yourself back is so important and, uh, and yeah, you're right. Probably those guys in the back in the day, they they had Metrodomes and they had some shitty four track recorder. They, you know, whatever it is, and that was kind of their secret tool that they had. The honesty
0: thing is a very interesting topic to me because you know, recorded so many guitar players and also deal with so many students that uh, I think a lot of people are being dishonest about how they sound, but they don't realize it. Right. And I think part of it is because they don't know where the bar is. So no one's ever shown them where the bar is. And in some cases you get these freaks like a Jeff Loomis, who knows if anyone ever showed him and uh, he just understood where the bar is or like an Ingve Malmsteen or something who just Mm. set his own bar. Like it's kind of unexplainable where, how they, how they figured out where that bar is and then raised it. I guess that's what talent.
2: Well, it, yeah. I mean, the thing about that is when you, when you think about what talent really is, a lot of people think, Oh, I wish I was that good at that instrument or singing or whatever. I'm just not that good. But the reason why the person is good at the instrument or that ability or whatever is because they have a certain type of brain. It just likes solving the puzzle that is singing or like solving the puzzle that is guitar and they find it enjoyable You can wish that you were good at something. I wish I was good at looking at a map and knowing which direction I'm facing. I fucking suck at it, but I never (laughs) practice it. And I don't find it enjoyable or fun or anything. And I can think, okay, the streets in order from my place to the store down the street, okay, I can remember every single street and that way I can create a grid in my brain. It's like, it's not gonna fucking happen. I'm just not interested enough. I don't care enough. And my brain is not built for that. What I enjoy more and what I sort of, get more, I don't know, maybe endorphins, I don't know, out of is playing a cool thing on guitar or writing a cool composition thing and piecing something together and having somebody go, wow, that's really cool. That's what my brain likes doing. Yeah, totally.
0: I know this person who I went to high school with who became like a special forces operator in some really high up unit for some country. And I'm not going to say which one. Okay. (laughs) And basically he's like the equivalent for that of like what these virtuoso musicians are. And the thing that was interesting about him was even when we were in high school, he was already just deadly. He he would do these things like go to these like obstacle course meetups in the woods where all these adult military males would like have to infiltrate something and like extreme capture the flag basically with like soldiers and Him at 16 would beat, would like win against like Marines and stuff. And like he got like his third black belt by the time he was 21. Like it was just, his brain was just solving that soldier puzzle at all times. like And he loved it too. It's kind of the same thing. It's a combination of just having this predisposition for something and then loving it enough to do enough work to actually get really good at it. Cause just having the talent isn't enough. It's a uh, loving it too.
2: Well, it's also circumstance. And I'm sure you guys both have this experience where somebody looks at you, they look at what you can do and on the instrument or with recording or, or whatever. And they say, man, I wish I could do that. And does it ever kind of make you kind of mad? <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little bit. It's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, if you wished, if you really, really want you go do if it. If you really wanted to do it, then you'd be doing it. You don't really want to do it because it's not in your brain to do it. So it's like you can you can be the biggest music lover in the world, but realize you can't play guitar and you go, you know, work at a as a music entertainment lawyer or because you love music and you love or you work at a, at a label or you work at a you know, uh, I don't, like uh, something else, like you can do offshoots of it, but for somebody that's like, man, I wish I had your level of talent. It's like, okay. I mean, I did just put in like 20 years of practice doing this. And, and I mean, that's not even my choice. I mean, I just, I saw a guitar when I was a kid. I was like, I love that thing. I'm just going to do that. And that's luck.
1: To a degree. I think so. But then you have the, the, again, another freak Alan Holdsworth, like where he really wanted to play the saxophone. Oh yeah. And ended up playing an instrument he didn't want to play and was better than everyone else at it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, d- I didn't know that he, I mean, like you can tell on his playing obviously, but I, I don't know too much about uh, about his backstory. He's phenomenal. That's all that matters. For isn't sure. It? <laughs> yeah.
0: I think that example though goes for anything in life. I've gotten that too about like, entrepreneurial pursuits, people saying things like, I wish that I had what you have, like in terms of companies. It's like, well, I like actually stopped what I was doing a full career to do this. Like didn't just magically appear one day. It was a very conscious decision with a ton of work. And if you really wanted it, you would do it too.
2: Yeah. And, and also not to mention probably blunders and missteps that you made at some point, yeah. you know. <laughs> Lot. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's, it is, it's, it's funny to, to see people's uh, opinion on the outside and then, you know, you don't want to look at the real reality, which is uh, so much practice and just all you, that's, I mean, you can be a career person where all you do is think about your career and that's, and then for somebody to come up and like, man, I wish I had that. It's like, well, I guess you don't, uh, you don't want it enough or your brain isn't uh, set up to do it. But I
0: don't know. In the case of like the entertainment lawyer who wishes he was a musician, I think sometimes those people are too hard on themselves. I know a few like that who are incredible lawyers who secretly wish they were musicians, and I never understood why they why they felt so bad about it. Because obviously their brain was great at solving a very valuable puzzle for a lot of people, and uh, if they weren't good at that, they wouldn't have become successful lawyers. Yeah, yeah,
1: it just wouldn't happen. It's probably also they saw the money versus.
2: <laughs> yeah. And that's another type of brain. Somebody likes solving the problem that is, how can I make the most amount of money? And oftentimes that's people that enjoy uh, high scores in video games and stuff like that. It's like, ah, man, that's just the way your brain is. And it's unfortunate that you can look at someone and be like, man, I really wish I had that, but, uh, and then not go for it because it is, it is sad. I have friends in high school, specifically one buddy uh, I went to high school with and I mean, he's told me recently, he's like, I don't know what I want to do. He's like, I am I work at a bank. I have a great job. I'm good at my job. I have friends. I have a supportive family. He's like, but I don't fucking like it, man. He's like, I don't know what I want to do. And he's 33, you know, I'm just lucky that I found a guitar and you guys are just lucky that you found the thing you did because any one of us could be in that spot too. And I I can only imagine how discouraging that could feel.
1: I mean, I think to a degree, we've probably all been in that spot, just maybe not as late in life. Right. If you know what I mean, we kind of made a conscious decision. Like you used to be in construction, right? Yeah. You made a conscious decision to like give it up and be quite broke for a little while, right? Because that's definitely what I did.
2: (laughs) Yeah, honestly, I had some luck there. My dad passed away in 2014, and oh, that's good luck. Da- <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, dude. <laughs> well, good thing he's not listening to this podcast. He might be. No, in the in 2014, my dad passed away, and uh, very sad. And when my uh, when my dad passed away, I, I managed to get basically a reset on all my debt, credit card debt, you know, whatever. And I managed to get a buffer between my livelihood, which was construction at the time, and being able to go pursue something that I actually really liked, which was teaching guitar. And so I got a job offer right at the right time. I had been building up a studio at my house at that time because of the small amount of money that I got and this sort of second chance. And that's luck. And honestly, I wouldn't be, I mean, you never know. I mean, maybe I'd be fucking working construction still if that hadn't happened. That was a huge change in my life where I was like, okay, I really want to get into recording. I want to get a better guitar. I want to get a desk. I want to get some studio monitors. I want to get a nice PC build. I want to be able to sort of do this and pursue it. And without that happening, there's no way I would have been able to do it. And so, you know, that really was a gift from him to me. But again, not everybody's lucky to have a second hand.
0: You still made that decision though, because... I mean, I'm sure you've known people who have gotten inheritances and then it's all gone within a year.
2: Oh my God. My worst nightmare. I I had that. I saw my bank account one day and I was like, I could fuck this up so easily. And I don't think I did, but man, I, I could have, you know, you just two years later, you'd be like, I don't have any money left. I have to go back working some shitty job that I hate. It's like, that could have been me, you know, but it wasn't. Well, yeah, that, that part's not luck. Right. In my opinion. Yeah, I I mean, you're probably right.
0: Well, the the luck factor, I think, is totally up for interpretation. Like, one thing that I always say is luck is having met a person who ran a regional magazine, who then got me in contact with a certain producer, who then got me in contact with Monty Connor, a roadrunner. And the luck was in having met the person at the magazine at the right time when my ad money, meant something to them, enough for them to pass me on to that producer. When that producer needed a band to get signed so that he could lift his own career up, like that's the luck factor. However, I could have easily fucked those opportunities up too, you know? Could have met the magazine person and not advertised in the magazine. And then none of that stuff would have unfolded or could have got into that producer and not signed a deal with him to shop my band. You know, the luck isn't that the the deal happened or any of that. The luck is just that I happened to meet the person at a place in time where they were receptive to whatever the hell it is that I was putting into the universe.
2: Well, I mean, what you could go is even deeper than that is if we even have free will to do any of this stuff anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's Sam Harris on. <laughs> yeah. I know what he has to say. Because... I mean, you didn't choose where you were born. That was luck. You didn't choose your parents. That was luck. You didn't choose your type of upbringing. That was luck. You didn't choose how your brain developed. That was luck. You know. And so, in the end, like Sam Harris says, too, is like I don't think my thoughts before I think them. I just have the thoughts. I didn't choose to have that thought. I just had it. And that's a product of potentially. I mean, a lot of people don't like to think about it, but a lot of people subscribe to the idea that uh, you don't choose your thoughts, and that means you don't really choose. What the fuck you're doing at all in life, anyway? And that's all just luck. So he does have a point. I mean, I totally agree. I don't think that that should take away from the fact that you have accomplishments in your life, or that you're proud of how you uh, how your life turned out, or where you're going in your life, or whatever. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, all that stuff is true. I don't think my thoughts before I have them. I just think them. They just appear in my brain. So. What, how am I the author of that, you know?
0: Well, I mean, but you choose how to react to them.
2: Again, I mean, do I? I mean, I don't think about, you know what I mean? I don't think about the reactions before I think them. I don't think, uh, if I have an emotion, I just have the emotion, you know? If I could get away from having anger or jealousy or envy or fucking, you know, or over, being over-empathetic for someone that doesn't deserve my, like, then I could fucking, I would totally turn that stuff off sometimes, but I literally can't.
0: So, Speaking of thoughts that you can't control besides your desire for me, <coughs> <laughs> how often do you now, like, after having done this for so long, get guitar ideas, like an idea for a piece of music or something like that, like an insp- like an inspirational concept that
2: then makes you go work? I like classical music a lot, so I like my favorite composer is Bach. So you listen to Bach and you just get overwhelmed by. It's so depressing to imagine that someone on Earth had that many crazy ideas and no one will ever, I mean, in my opinion, no one will ever come close to having that many ideas.
0: Well, there's a theory that there were like three of him. Is that true? Yes. There's there's a theory that Bach is a a family. I mean, there is proof that there's multiple Bachs, but there's a theory that the Bach, the famous one. JS Bach? Is actually like... Yeah, three to five people.
2: Well, I mean, his son composed great music too. And yeah, I mean, his family was, a, it's a concept that we don't really have now. It's a, it's a family of composer musicians that also perform. at it's just like, man, that's weird. You know, that does seem strange. Listening to that stuff, for me, I hear it and I'm like, if I could only make this into death metal, then I would just be like so fulfilled. But I mean, it is also frustrating to imagine the, level of theory knowledge and the level of musical experience and the, just how his life unfolded and his upbringing and the age at, with, at which he played music, started playing music. You know, I can never really compete with that. But when I listen to his music or other composers similar to him, I definitely get inspiration and ideas. But man, it's frustrating to listen to some of that and be like, man, how can someone write so much crazy music? And we're still talking about it like fucking 400 years in the future.
0: Yeah, It's nuts. How does that work for you, taking an influence from something like Bach and then making it translate into death metal without it being super cheesy in the way that like, you know, like when guitar players used to transcribe like a Beethoven piece and then put like that cheesy Casio drum beat to it and it would just make you want to die?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is really the drums. I mean, the drums are always so bad to and then crazy guitar playing over top <laughs> it wasn't good but you know
0: it was horrible
2: Inve malmsteen uh his guitar playing is neoclassical it's it's baroque as fuck it's so expressive it's it's insanely fast and you know there's that one video uh where he plays with the, the japanese orchestra and it's like damn that's so cool but yeah you're right past that a lot of people just sort of take it play the melodies play the harmonies but then they leave kind of everything else kind of whatever you have to have the contrast. So you play a death metal riff that's heavy and brutal and unrelenting and crazy or whatever. And then you straight up rip off Mozart like we do. And so you just play a Mozart riff and you play fast drums and somebody goes, Oh cool. And then you go back to, so the contrast is important and also taking out a lot of those pieces go to major keys. And I, uh, I generally just skip the major key part. I'll <laughs> say like, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you're in a major key now. It's because
1: kids. it sounds cheesy as
2: fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was their entertainment. You listen to this. The thing that blows me away is that when you were, if you weren't a wealthy person in the 1700s or any any like area of hundreds or 200 300 years in either direction, you might hear your favorite piece of music once in your life. And that is crazy. It's
1: mental, isn't it?
2: Yeah. That's deep too. That's like, Whoa. Oh, I heard this one piece of music once and that's it. And it's like, Oh, it was amazing. And you couldn't be more opposite today. It's literally the opposite. There's, way too much music right now. And most of it sucks. And back then you hear your favorite piece of music or whatever. And, and it's like watching a movie or it's like watching the craziest movie you could imagine. Cause it has dark parts. It has uplifting parts. It has hopeful sections. It has everything, all the emotions all in one. And so, yeah, music is not quite like that anymore.
0: No, that, that's actually a good point about orchestral that it does go to those places because it is fulfilling mm-hmm. the role that we get from other forms of media these days as far as like covering expression so on that note would the reason to not go in those directions in death metal be just because it sounds weird the reason i'm asking is because some people think of death metal is a super limited genre which it is and it isn't it's both like i hear what you do with it and it's like pushing boundaries i hear what a lot of people do with it and it's not pushing boundaries like how do you work that in like Pushing boundaries in a genre that, by definition, has lots of boundaries.
2: You're still anchored to the the staples of the genre. And those change over time. And playing it long enough, you kind of get a vibe for how the genre is going. And and hopefully, you can be a part of changing the direction of where it's going. And like you said earlier, in about 2010, you felt a stale kind of... Plenty of bands were putting up music that you were like, eh, whatever. So if you can help steer the genre in a certain direction, that's cool. Trying to figure out unique ways to do that is really... Difficult And it needs to be time consuming. And so for us, we find it very time consuming. I also have the luxury of playing with like four of the craziest musicians I've ever played with. So, I mean, when we're at a jam spot, I have four other filters between my riff, Toby's riff, Jared's bass part, drums, vocal line, all this stuff gets filtered through all of us. And we then go, okay, is this the right direction for this song or not? There's not one person saying, here's your part, which can be effective. And plenty of bands that I love do that. But when you have those extra filters, then you get everybody's take on the genre all at once. And every once in a while, a cool idea that's outside of the genre's staples makes its way through. And then that's how those directions get made. And you take the, the steering, you steer it in a different direction for that song or that album or, or whatever. So I don't know. I think it, I think it has to be, I think great music is generally written, uh, with in groups and with, uh, outside expectation. Somebody says, Hey, that guitar riff is pretty cool, but I think you could do better. And me sitting at my desk at home, maybe I could have done better, but I wanted to get coffee and then I forgot to write another part and (laughs) it wasn't so great or whatever. But now I've got somebody telling me that part's cool, but I think you need to write something else. In, in addition to it. And, and I go, oh, I think you're right. And now that person's in my head saying this thing and and I push myself to do it. And, and I do the likewise, I do likewise to them too. I, they say, this part's great. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, it's great, but here's a part, Not that here's great. a thing that you didn't notice about it. You're playing this cool technique, but the one element about it that's missing in my opinion is this. And they can agree or disagree, but I think that's where important decisions are made. For the songs or the albums or whatever. And I think that that's uh, one of the reasons for some of our success as a band. When you're coming up with those outside ideas,
0: is it ever kind of like what we were just talking about, the Sam Harris thing of you don't think the thought before you think it, you just think it like sometimes do those ideas just uh, poof appear basically out of the ether?
2: I mean, I, it's it's weird because all three of us have written music and all three of us have taken all of our inspiration, all of our favorite guitar players, our favorite musicians, our favorite genres of music, and we put them together into our compositional output. So we have this guitar we're playing and we write something and we're like oh that's cool but it's like wait why do I think that's cool it's because I heard Dimeg Daryl play this one rhythm when I was 15 years old and I heard him play that and it stuck in my head and that's in addition to this one Mozart piece that has this other chord progression in it those two things together are cool and that's all music really is it's building up all of your influences and then you have a cool output that it was a combination of things that no one ever really thought before I can't say that I'm really the originator of too many original ideas on the instrument, just more ripping off other people at higher tempos.
0: So There's a really great book called, and I've talked about it before, but anybody who finds what you just said interesting about combining the two ideas, there's a book you should all read called Where Good Ideas Come From by an author called Stephen Johnson and Chapter two is about that. Oh, yeah. It calls it the adjacent possible. And basically, the adjacent possible is the idea that ideas come from the combination of two unexpected things. Right. That you pick up at different points in time or that a team, if you have a team who have like different experiences, you know, whether it's you by yourself or in a team, the best ideas come from taking one influence or discipline that you got in one way another discipline or influence that you got in another way. And then basically having the light bulb go off on how they can combine together to basically create the adjacent possible new idea.
2: That's cool. That's totally cool. It's just, and and you, and like, I mean, Hey, going back to free will, we, we don't have any choice of where those things come from. You, you're reminded of things subconsciously, you know, and, and a lot of the time I say this sometimes to to students of mine, it's like your ear knows more about music theory than you do. So your ear can tell you if something sounds like shit. You can't tell your ear or you can't tell somebody else necessarily why it sounds like shit or why it sounds good. You know, we all know that a major chord sounds great. But the reason why is because of the ratios between the frequencies that vibrate in nature. We have the order of harmonic importance between the one and the five, and that ratio is even, and they fit. the, the wavelengths fit into each other in a certain way, and they give us this expectation and then release. They give you tension, then release, and, and you have these cadences. But your ear doesn't know that shit. All your ear is telling you is like, is it good or bad? It can hear something, but it takes years and years and years of study to realize why that shit actually works. And yeah, I mean, like, it's just, it's weird how our brains work subconsciously, taking ideas, two parts of our life, 10 years apart sometimes, and putting them together and you create what's known as an original idea, but it it isn't really.
0: Yeah. Well, in that book, one of the big concepts is that there are no really original ideas. But when a lot of people say there are no original ideas, they mean it almost in a negative way. But the way that he describes it is more that that's actually a good thing. That's in an evolutionary sort of way. Everything that exists only exists because things led up to that point prior. And it's actually a great thing that there's no true originality because where would it come from and what context would we have for it? There would be none. The only reason that the ideas mean something to us is because they take something that came before it further.
2: Well, I mean, on the subject, can I, can I introduce you guys to my friend Jesus Christ? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh. So dude, what role does theory play for you? If any,
2: it's a pretty big role. I think it kind of goes in waves where you're thinking about modes and chords, Uh, more so on one section than you are somewhere else. Or sometimes you're like this, I can't have a melody here because the part doesn't call for it. So I need to have something that goes against my ideas of what sounds good. And it needs to be more chromatic, more, I don't want to have a melodic cadence or pulled anything. I just want to have something that sounds brutal or as we call them, like dumb guy riffs, but even dumb guy riffs,
0: (laughs) I call them tractor pull. riffs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Even tractor pull and riffs. Those riffs still have a rhythmic quality to them that theory can explain uh, why it makes your head go like up and down because you're stoked to hear it. You're like, all right, this is a heavy riff because here's the theory why. And you can take that and, and use it to write more riffs like that, but I find it's just more fun to oftentimes... Just fuck around on the instrument and see what happens. But when it comes to writing more melodic stuff, for sure, you have chord progressions. And if you can think about it in terms of what people expect to hear, this chord progression leads to this and this mode works over top of this chord. And that sounds great. But oftentimes people's ears, like I said, they kind of know where something is going. And so if you can understand where they think you're taking them and then take them somewhere else, I think that's really effective. And yeah, knowing some theory definitely helps me do that.
1: I think that sometimes, not necessarily everyone, but I think the order in which theory is learned in comparison to how fast your ear learns that theory can be kind of negative towards some people's playing. Like what I mean is that they can explain to you what, you know, diminished Lydian or whatever. I don't even know if that's a real scale, but (laughs) basically they can tell you what it is, but then they don't know actually know what it sounds like, like they don't know the interval relationship and how certain things work within that scale. I think that that is the most important part of theory that a lot of people miss out. I don't know how you feel about that, but like, you know, for example, like when you're playing in like, let's say the Aeolian mode, you kind of have a rough gauge on what that's going to sound like based on previous experience and stuff like that. But I think that a lot of people miss that part about learning theory actually learning the interval relationship between all of the different positions.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of people start with learning something like modes, like you brought up. You start by learning modes and you say, okay, so I want to learn all the modes, so I got to learn all their names and then I got to learn every single position on the fretboard and I got to name every single one. I'm like, that is, in my opinion, a waste of time. You need to learn what each one sounds like and the reason why you would use it rather than how it looks on your fretboard and exactly which pitches it is. Because... We have to enjoy using it, and we have to have a reason as to why we're learning this shit. So, to like you're saying, the alien mode, there's reasons why you would know uh, where it would go, where it would go over top of a chord, and you understand the intervals inside of, that, inside of that mode, and then all the modes on either side of it as well, and what they're built out of. But you can learn all this cool stuff, but what does it sound like? And what's the reason that you would use it? And what kind of mood does it create? So whenever I was teaching modes... To students, I would say, here's a drone note. Let's play every mode of the major scale and let's hear it and let's relate the name to the type of sound that you get and then we can figure out why you get that sound and then we can memorize all of them. And then if you want, you can work on the scalar exercises, but in my opinion, it's sort of... I mean, it's so important what you're playing over top of that every scale can sound like Lydian if you play over a Lydian-style chord. So you can play Aeolian all all over the fretboard, but if you're playing a chord that shows the Lydian notes out of that scale underneath of it, then everything you're playing in that so-called Aeolian mode is going to sound Lydian because the chord underneath is dictating what your ears are hearing. It's not about the shapes on the fretboard as much as it is which note is determined as the root and then what kind of tonality is created on top of that did i just hear
0: you say fun and major scale in the same sentence
2: (laughs) yeah not the major (laughs) scale no no no. let's skip that one skip ionian
0: (laughs) god
1: i hate
2: it so much yeah let's go to a cooler one like i mean even lydian
1: lydian to me also sounds kind of unfinished in many ways
2: oh yeah Uh, unfinished cool
1: yeah yeah do you know what I mean? It's like that spacey kind of, uh-huh. it's not as far out as diminished, but it's just kind of because of the, the you know, the the sharpened fourth, it always just sounds really weird. That's cool. <laughs> I never heard anybody
2: call it unfinished, but that's sweet. Yeah, I mean, there is a certain element to that mode. There's actually uh, some people that that say the idea that the real major scale is Lydian because it doesn't have uh, an avoid note, which is a note that's one semitone above a chord tone. So you don't have a fl- uh, perfect four, you have a sharp four, but because that's considered atonal, uh, the definition of atonal is the tritone distance, you know what I mean, a scale with uh, atonality. It doesn't have the, the perfect fifth relationship between the root and the and the five, it doesn't have that, but Lydian does, it has a perfect five, but the the sharp four in it, is brighter than the normal major scale. But for whatever reason, we picked Ionian as our one. And I mean, one of the big reasons is because the 5-1 relationship inside of Ionian is dominant, tonic. And the dominant has that tension that we like. It does sound better in a lot of ways, but Lydian sounds brighter and more, I don't know,
0: happy, airy,
2: airy. <laughs> yeah. And this is, this is what I like teaching talking about modes is because when students come up and they say, yeah, I heard all this stuff about modes. It's like, let's talk about what it sounds like rather than what it makes you feel and what images come up in your mind when you hear this mode, rather than the exact position on the fretboard that you have to memorize by next week. It's like, that's fucking boring, dude. That sucks.
0: <laughs> John, what you said earlier about how you think that, uh, people get carried away with the names of theoretical ideas rather than how to use them, like their intellectual skills and their musical skills aren't aligned. I feel like that's very similar to what I was talking about with technology around the 2010 part, like there's a mismatch between people's ability to create music and the technology that they have in front of them. I'm sure you've met those players who they like way overemphasize theory to the point where they aren't thinking about how it feels or how it sounds. And kind of end up writing very correct, but super stale kind of music. Like everything's technically right about it, but it's not right.
2: I wouldn't say that I've met too many people like that, but there are... I have a Berkeley. Okay. All right. You, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, you win. Yeah. You win. That's, that's where. Okay. There you go.
0: <laughs> not so much in like the professional scene, because generally like the people who have made it to pro... Either they're like really good, and so they they don't have that problem, or somehow they're really cool, right? And uh, th- they work with someone who's really good. But yeah, man, the professors at Berkeley—holy shit—they're like the definition of that is So rough.
2: I think that there's a there's definitely like a place for those type of people, and honestly, having somebody that isn't necessarily as creative in a certain way can be a great writing partner. Having someone that comes up with less ideas, but has an information that, uh, like access to information that you don't, that can be like, here's actually this idea that maybe you hadn't thought of. Uh, they're not necessarily the person at home writing but uh, all the time, but they're the person that can help you realize your uh, the idea that you have in your head. That's a useful person to have, but that's not to say that I've ever worked with anybody that has almost zero creative output and everything that they have is by the book. Here's this. I mean, even still, if you write a, like you're saying, like a theory centric piece of music, that would be like, I don't know, let's say like a Bach style contrapuntal piece or whatever. It's like, I still like the sound of that. uh, But yeah, it's not revolutionary now because it's been done a thousand times and with creative ideas that were original when they were written, but now it's... It's like it's kind of been done.
0: I think. I think what you're describing is the difference between a craftsman and an artist. Right. They're both very valuable.
2: Yeah. They play different roles, and, and it's great to have two people like that that work together. And and I mean, I'm on one side of that spectrum as well. I don't necessarily come up with a ton of ideas on a, at home, but oftentimes I'll work with somebody, and they'll they'll give me an idea of a style or an idea, and I'll come up with something. It's not something that they could have come up with them on their own, and it's not something that I would have come up with on my own, but the partnership is what creates the music. Awesome. We've got some
0: questions from listeners for you if you don't mind. Okay, Sean Davis says, "Sick, Dean, <laughs> How old are you, man? Like are you 32 or 26? I can't tell. Nah, but serious question. Have you found doing the cover videos a more organic way to learn new techniques? or do you think formal practice will be more beneficial? Sorry if worded terribly. <laughs>
2: it's weird he did guess my age immediately the first thing 32 yeah I think that the long form things were good ways for me to introduce like new ideas into my playing but yeah I mean I I guess it is more exciting and more fun for me because I get to actually be productive and learn somebody else's music which sometimes those don't really seem like they're the same thing oftentimes I'll be learning something and I'll get to a part and I'll be like fuck this why am I even learning this but if I'm doing it for a video then I sort of feel obligated in my uh the expectation is maybe higher. I just keep myself accountable more by showing it to other people. That's actually a big reason why like keeping a, a diary or a log of like doing workouts for me was helpful because if I kept that, then I could see it and I like kept myself accountable when I, you know what I mean? Like that stuff is valuable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's probably better than just regular practice for me.
1: So I've got a question here from Jared. Takax, Probably pronounced that wrong, so sorry, Jared. Hey, Dean, I'm a huge fan. A lot of people consider Archspire to be torchbearers for the modern tech death scene, especially after the masterpiece that is Relentless Mutation. I'm Canadian as well and couldn't be prouder of our tech death scene. What are some of your favorite Canadian metal bands?
2: The Quebec scene is really cool. So they came up with lots of amazing bands like Beyond Creation, Cryptopsy, Martyr, First Fragment. I'd say probably... First Fragment and Martyr are my two favorite bands in that scene from Canada, like, and just mostly from like a guitar player perspective, because that shit is just, I don't know if you guys both know either of those bands.
0: I don't know First Fragment. I am aware of Martyr.
2: Martyr is uh, Dan Mongrain, who plays in Voivod now. Wait a second. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is one of the best guitar players that I've ever seen. He just writes the coolest shit. And yeah, I mean, I, he's he's just really inspirational. And then as far as Vancouver, there's plenty of other awesome metal bands, but there's not too many in this the same scene that we play in. Uh, my wife plays in a band called The Hallowed Catharsis, uh, and that's a band that we played a, th- a few times. And they're awesome. They're a little bit more proggy than us, less death metal and more proggy with death metal elements, but, uh, but they're great. Does your wife play guitar? She plays guitar. She's a Kiesel artist as well.
1: Oh, sick. Awesome. They make videos together. I must've missed that.
2: Yeah. She's great. She plays a really cool green splatter Aries Kiesel guitar and it's pretty sick. Doing videos, our guitars look really sick next to each other.
1: <laughs> sick. <laughs>
0: yeah. Basically he ch- teaches her riffs in the videos, right?
2: Yeah. That's one element. Another element is like, my wife has uh, classical music training so she went to a, uh, a university here in North Vancouver called Caplano and she studied classical guitar so she has like sort of this big influence of classical music and and she's like a history classical music history buff as well so there was times where she would bring something home and I'd be like learning so much stuff I feel like a big part of my appreciation for classical music comes from watching her go through school just her bringing stuff home it was very informative. And uh, I think her and I kind of share that, although she's more so into that stuff than I am. Okay.
0: Question from Bhavnish Sarin, which is, uh, what's your guitar signal chain and are you fond of any guitar processing plugins?
2: I don't use too many plugins. The Neural stuff is cool. The Neural DSP stuff, it's great. We played through that stuff at uh, at Nam two years in a row. It feels quite good. At home, I have a Pod HD 500 that I never touch, and it just sits under my desk and it's a patch that I created five years ago and I don't touch it and I think it sounds fucking awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I'm not a tone guy. I just want to have something that I can just plug into and just play. And it sounds good. I'm not a mixing guy. I don't I feel like I just come up with really bad ideas. All, we went down to <laughs> I went down to San Antonio to work on a Kemper package with the guys at Tone Crate, and that's available online. So don't take into consideration any of the stuff I just said about how bad I am at building tones. Anyway, so I built a tone, <laughs> and we went down there, and it was great. I sat there, played guitar, and they said, "Okay, cool, play this riff, play it for a while, whatever." I'm like, "Okay, cool." And they said, "Hey, what do you think about this tone?" I said, "It sounds pretty good." And they're like, "Yeah, it sounds kind of shitty." I'm like, "Oh, okay, yeah, I guess you're right." And and then, uh, and then I was like, Hey guys, my hands are getting kind of tired. And they said, Oh, that's okay. We can just play these stems. So then at that point I was no longer playing guitar. I was just sitting there listening and, uh, and they would ask me a question. I would say, yeah, it sounds great. They're like, ah, I think it needs more of this. And I said, you got it. And then I filmed some videos and then I left. <laughs> and, uh, I think we created a great product together. <laughs> <laughs> great product.
1: That's unique. Answer. Yeah. Really good answer. <laughs> So this is from Jared Tarix again. You seem like a pretty laid back dude. Do you feel this is a necessary personality trait in order to reach very high levels of technical playing?
2: I feel like they're very separate. I think the only reason why I come across as that is because I did teach kids. And to teach kids, you have to be engaging and fun, but also patient and... Like I said earlier, like kind of like a babysitter. So I'm actually working on trying to get rid of that aspect of my personality (laughs) because.
0: (laughs) Well, you want to be an asshole or something?
2: Well, honestly, there's times where I'll be talking and my wife will be like, hey, you sound like a guitar teacher right now. I'm like, fuck, I do. I don't want to fucking sound like that. So when people meet me from now on, I'm just going to be a total asshole. But Canadians can't
1: be arseholes. That's the problem. (laughs) I was about to say, you're kind of going against the DNA right right there.
2: (laughs) You haven't met some Canadians.
0: True. Okay, one from Alexis Berger. Arkspire rips so hard. Emoji, 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 emoji. Given the complexity of the song structures and the number of riffs, do you write a lot of the riffs and then play Tetris to arrange them together? Or do you start with just a riff or two to give the song its identity and then use those as inspiration to build the rest of the song from there?
2: That's actually a good, uh, that's a question I've never heard before because it's it's not about who comes up with the riffs and when, it's when you come up with a riff, how do you piece everything together? We've changed our writing style a little bit lately. So when we started writing for this album, we did something we've never done before where we jammed out new ideas and as soon as we had something, we would track it. And then we would put it in place and move stuff around. And I found that was horrible and I hated it. I never want to do it again. So it sucked. So because it just turned me into the band engineer and we were all moving stuff around and I didn't find it fun. So I think we're finding a good balance between recording ideas so that you don't forget them, but still jamming out an idea and the song up until however far you've gotten in the writing process and getting a feel for the progression that way. So we still come up with a riff idea And then we'll come up with another one. We'll say, do these work next to each other or whatever? Are they at the same tempo? And then we'll build a song like that, sort of building it up and up and up until we feel like it's a good length and it flows nicely. And then... Once we have the skeleton, then we'll go back and we'll mix it, we'll take out riffs, we'll say this one sucks actually, and we'll replace it with another one that's better, or we'll say this song has a middle part gap because we need something better in here, so two months later we'll finally come up with a riff or, or whatever. So for the most part it's still organically jamming it out from start to finish, and then after that we'll sort of mix and match.
0: Okay, from Alexis Berger, following the last question, do you guys jam most parts as they become part of the songs to make sure it hits very hard in a live setting or is it mostly written in a dawn? and then once the song is completed, you learn everything and be played live like Meshuga does, for example?
2: The only thing that we didn't cover there was the idea that when we go to the studio, we did this for our last album, is we play seven or eight shows on the way to the studio and then we see how the crowd reacts to new music that we're playing And we adjust the length of the song or we adjust repetitions of certain riffs based on crowd reaction. And we learn that from Cattle Decapitation because they do that. On their way to the studio, they'll play some songs live and they'll get a feel about how they work in a live setting. And I think that was really valuable for us.
0: Great. Okay, one from Jeff Vickery. I love your YouTube channel. It never fails to make me laugh. I would like to hear your favorite Dave Otero story and also maybe some insight as to how he manages to consistently capture such great performances from the bands he works with. It would be interesting to hear it from the guitarist's perspective.
2: I think one cool thing about Dave is that he's very, very smart and just is so good at everything that he tries to do that it's like kind of frustrating he recently got into video and he's like amazing at it yes he is yeah and and he got into video editing after he got these camera gear and he's amazing at that and he he's amazing at recording he's great at playing guitar great at playing drums I mean the dude is just I mean when we we showed up to his place to record and he was like changing the brakes on his BMW car. It's like, if, I've, if I fucking know how to change brakes, like I, maybe I should, maybe that's more about me than it is about him. <laughs> but, uh, he's just, is a very smart guy. I mean, he has guns and we went to his shooting range near his house and he had like all this safety information for us. And, and he had like, it just, he, he seems very genuine and, and intelligent and a smart guy. And I love him. What was the second part of the question? <laughs> How does he manage
0: to get such consistently great performances out of artists he works with, like from your perspective as a guitar player?
2: He's really good at editing. (laughs) I mean, he is great at editing. I feel like we went in there so prepared that it was a little bit less on his end trying to get the best performances. Although he did make us feel very comfortable and introduced the idea of, One guitar player plays this part because he's better at that technique than the other guitar player and vice versa. So when Toby and I recorded guitars on the album, Rhythms, we did that. He was better at this technique and I'm better at this technique. And Dave was like, we have to save time. We need to accept that if this guy is already warmed up with this riff, we're going to have him do both guitars. And so I think that that's a really important thing because you can't let ego get into the way too much. Otherwise, you're going to have... An album with the quality is going to be less than you had hoped for. You're going to have one side kind of spongy and the other one tight. And if you want a certain vibe for a certain part, it's just better and easier for everybody to just get one guitar player to to track both sides.
1: I think that this is a really important subject for a lot of people out there. Just knowing when... To uh, have one guitar player do all of the parts when it comes to the instruments, both guitars and even the bass. And Al actually covered this on a, uh, when he recorded us for, um, for, um, for the Creative Live Bootcamp. Exactly, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, where um, it just showed the difference in two guitarists playing, even though... You're playing the same riffs and both guitar players can be really good. It just sounds different because everyone's different.
2: Everybody's different, yeah. And if you let ego get into the way too much where it's like, oh, well, I need to play all the stuff on my side of the guitar. It's like, I mean, we're in a death metal band. We have X amount of weeks to record this album. We need to get it done. And it's if it means we save 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes a day doing this, then let's do it, you know. Also,
0: there's something about metal, especially the more extreme forms that for the production to sound right, you kind of need a cohesive feel in the rhythms. And even if you have two players who are both good, one of them is going to have a feel that's more, you know, in the zone for the part. And uh, you just have to go with that. As opposed to, like, say something like Guns N' Roses and, like, Appetite for Destruction, where Slash and Izzy played two drastically different guitar parts on left and right, Right. and it just works. But that's, like, rock, and it's, like, half the speed. Yeah. It's simple. Half the notes. Yeah. Uh, Last question from Owain Roberts. How much time do you spend warming up before a show? Your leads are mind-bending. Emoji.
2: Probably 20 minutes uh, of warm-up, but honestly, as the tour goes on, it becomes more like five. I mean, you you set up (laughs) the set list so that it's like... It's
1: the easiest song first,
2: right? Yeah. I mean, the easiest. And I mean, it's really tough because with our music, you have the drums for this one song are fucking hard and the guitar is really easy for this most of the first half of this song. And so you're like, oh, well, I would love to start with that song, but our drummer Spencer doesn't want to, or the vocals for this part, the first song are absolutely naked. So we don't want to start with that one because your vocals are, and the mix of the room is just not set for it yet anyway for the first song or two. So, uh, yeah, I mean, as you go on, it becomes more like five minutes or something, but at the first, you know, week of shows, I may be doing 20, 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes. Um, I really should play more on tour, but I just find that I, just the crushing boredom just gets rid of all, (laughs) um, I I just don't want to do anything, honestly.
0: I have a theory that touring. Lowers your IQ, right? (laughs) Lowers your IQ, but then also emotionally stunts you. Oh my God. Development wise.
2: like You get frozen
0: in time, basically.
2: Totally. You don't think about your taxes. You don't think about your rent. You don't think, you don't think about that stuff because it's sort of far away and you're like, oh, I'll do all this stuff when I get back. And you get back and you're like, oh, right. I have all that stuff I have to do.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, the rest of the world has kept moving along. Well, Dean, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure catching up with you again.
2: Yeah, thank you guys. Thanks for having me.
0: And it's lovely to meet you, Dean. You as well. Hope to see you before 2023. That would be great. Well, that was a cool one.
1: Yeah, he's a he's a fucking nice guy, isn't he? Fucking Canadians, man. <laughs> <laughs> and his band's fucking sick.
0: Yeah, and I'm not that into, like, death metal anymore as I grow older, but... Somehow I'm always cool with his band.
1: Yeah, it's just one of those bands that you can hear the, you know, after him telling us how they write it, it kind of makes a lot of sense, even though I can imagine that it is incredibly difficult to write with how they do it. That's
0: actually kind of surprising. I didn't expect it to be so collaborative for what they do. That just, that seems insane to me because it's so complicated.
1: And imagine trying to make five people happy with that. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, see, that's the thing about when they played the URM Summit, they totally had that vibe. You know how some bands seem kind of like five solo operators who just kind of meet up for a show, and then some bands like
1: are like a unit? Yeah. They kind of have like the unit vibe. It's quite a rare thing, actually, in a way, because obviously band members live so far apart, generally.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a rare thing, and also just bands... Typically hate each other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's from spending extended periods of time in a confined space. Yeah,
0: and not making any money. Of course. I think being able to pay your bills from it alleviates lots of hatred.
1: Oh, I think so too. I think that the moment everyone gets paid, it's like a a breath of fresh air and everything seems good again. Yeah, absolutely. But back to the
0: way they write, it reminds me a lot of kind of what you do on Riff Rescue. Someone presents an idea and then you kind of help them see things that they didn't see before or fill in the gap, like Dean said.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So with Riff Rescue, you can submit a riff that you've written, a song that you've written, if you're a member of Riff Hard. And I will basically manipulate it in as as many ways as possible. In fact, I did one today. It's the 7th of June. So today I decided to rescue my own riffs because they'd been lingering in the back of my head
0: for weeks at this point. How do you rescue your own riffs?
1: I actually just work on them from the initial idea so people can see the inception through to like a a final sort of when it starts to sound good. So they see me do my process on myself, which I think is quite important so that they can see just how strict I am with my own stuff as well. I mean, obviously every other time it's normally whoever submitted a riff. But today I decided to do that. And I think it was quite successful. As I say, these have been lingering. These little ideas have just been in the back of my head. I keep going to them when I'm playing the guitar as well. So it's almost like I need to extinguish this sort of sound. So that's always a good way to do it as well. Just record everything down. And if you don't like it, well, send it in to me and I'll see what I can do with it.
0: I think that there's some value there because if you're only working on other people's riffs, they might think that you're doing things in a special sort of way for them, or you're being super strict on them because to make for a better lesson or something. But if they see that, no, actually, you put yourself through the same amount of scrutiny.
1: Oh, of course. I think
0: that that's helpful. And then also to watch you actually do it. When you're helping somebody, that's kind of like advice and concepts. However, when they watch you do it, there's something about emulation that people can do like by kind of being like a fly on the wall, watching your entire process.
1: I think that as well, a lot of the comments that I've seen, cause obviously it's a live session and a lot of the comments that I've seen are people not really believing how many takes it's taken me to get this stuff down. I'm not an editing guitar player. I prefer just to play the entire riff all the way through to get into the groove and how it's meant to feel. Cause it's kind of what we were talking about with Dean earlier, how Things can be edited way too far or they can sound like Guitar Pro. So I like to get it to where it grooves nicely. So because, you know, just between takes, it feels different. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time in my writing sessions doing that. So it feels good. So, yeah, a couple of the comments today were just like, I can't believe how many times that you went over it, even if a take was good, because it just didn't feel right or something like that, basically. So it shows that side of it as well. Just like how much effort goes into each individual element of writing not just trying to improve the riff as much as possible but also getting the performance in that moment so that it feels exactly how you want it to
0: that reminds me of something dean was saying when he was talking about how keeping honest is so important like for instance is that riff really as good as you think it is or did you mean to work on it but you went and got coffee instead and just kind of let a subpar version of it exist and i think that one of the things that People who haven't worked with someone who's way better than them or someone who's pro, one of the things that they're missing is perspective on how long these things can take. Uh, One of the places where I see people limiting themselves is saying that something is good enough way too soon. And until they see, no, this is how that dude that I really look up to does it. This is how long he spends. That almost like flips a light switch on in their head on how long they should be spending.
1: I also think there's a bit of a gauge as well. So say you've got on one direction of that gauge, like where it'll do, which is, you know, you've played the take through three times and you've chosen the best of the three. And it's probably, for some freaks out there, it's probably going to be really good. But then for a lot of people, it won't. But then you've got on the other side of this spectrum, the over-edited, it doesn't sound like a guitar anymore. And I think somewhere in the middle, there's kind of like this bit where... There can be an element of mistake to the take, but it sounds really good against what else is going on in the rest of the song. I think there's that equilibrium in the middle. Just imagine those old records like Incubus. Well, I say old. I mean, I mean it is 20 years old now, but there was always an element of mistake to the part, if you know what I mean. It wasn't completely perfect. It had the human element of it, which I think a lot of music is now missing. And I think it's finding that point is really, really important for all of us to refined because we just rely on editing too much these days, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And again, until you see somebody pull it off, it's hard to understand what's actually possible. Just pushing ourselves a little bit harder than we think. It's almost like that moment where you think it's good enough is the moment where you should start working harder to get it right.
1: I think so too. And obviously every one of us thinks that in a lot of probably aspects of our life. And it's just understanding that, taking a step back from it for a minute and then trying again. So you just don't get frustrated. I think that's like the most important thing. I think that's why we say that's good enough because we're frustrated. Yeah, or bored.
0: (laughs) All that, yeah. Or legitimately think it's good enough and are delusional. There's definitely an
1: element of that as well. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyways, if you want help with your riffs or want more insight into the riff writing process, go to riffhard.com and check out Riff Rescue.
1: There's loads of old episodes you can watch. When I say old, I mean just the ones from the previous months. They're probably between two and four hours long. And there's a lot of insight in there. I really do recommend that you watch them.
0: All right, John, do this again in a week.
1: Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.